Pulp MX Network production. Thanks for all the support, Pulp MX fans. The Pulp MX app is now available for both iPhone and Android-based phones. For all your moto needs, shop at btosports.com and use the current discount code PULPMX. And don't forget to click the Amazon banner on PULPMX.com when purchasing anything from Amazon. It's the Steve Mathis Show, brought to you by RacerX, presented by BTOSports.com and ThorMX. The original Moto Podcast, featuring legends of the past, stars of today, season previews and race reviews, introspection, opinion, facts, and laughs. Here's your host, Steve Mathis. Welcome to the BTOsports.com RacerX podcast show presented by Thor MX. Thanks for listening, everybody. Listen to the commercials on here at Thor MX and BTO to uh, find out all about them. And, and this podcast wouldn't happen without BTOsports.com and, uh, and Thor MX. Get your stuff now. Save money with those great companies. I'm your host, Steve Mathis. Um, thanks, for everybody, for listening. With me on the line, almost uh, in a way... A part two of the Jim Hale uh, podcast because this gentleman, besides being uh, maybe perhaps one of the winningest mechanics ever, is also uh, a guy that uh, was right there for mechanics where for the start and the idea man, idea man behind more than a few things. Uh, Brian Lunis, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much yeah. for having me on. Yeah, uh, thanks for, for doing this. I appreciate it. I know um, you've been one of those guys that's on the list, and uh, I've interviewed, geez, I've interviewed all your old riders, it seems like. Um, so why not Why not talk to you? And um, uh, I guess right away, right at the start, what, uh, you're at Mechanics Wear. What's your title? What do you, what do, you do these days? What's, what's involved in your job? Uh, I'm the Director of Research and Development here at Mechanics Wear. Um, Oh, boy, my job is all-encompassing for everything we do. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm involved with uh, finding new factories, finding new materials, uh, you know, uh, help design new gloves that people contact us with or we have from our racing side of things, Mm -hmm. Um, uh, developing new things for that different projects or people that come to us. Mm Mm-hmm. So uh, right at the moment, I'm deep in a whole project about the building gloves here in the U.S. for the U.S. military, Okay, which has been a, a long, ongoing project. So I'm in the middle of doing that right now. And then um, always we always have many, many things that are going on that we do for racing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's pretty much where a lot of our development work goes on because in racing, everybody is trying to make it better right. every day. So a lot of our testing goes with some of our race teams, which we have numerous between motorcycles and drag racing and NASCAR and sports cars and any cars and, you know, all these different venues that we're involved with. Mm-hmm. Um, we have people that come to us with, uh, hey, I have this job and, I need something to make this better, or you have a glove, but if you did this, it'd make it better, or, you know, if yeah. the sizing's not right, or something along those lines. So we're always got this ongoing um, development program going on. It's uh, it's amazing, and I said this to Jim on the podcast, this, this, I mean, as a fellow mechanic, uh, you know, I used pit boards, and I don't even know what we used gloves before mechanics came out, 
Um, and and this, this, this idea is a multi-million dollar company now. And, and who'd have ever thought it? And what, what, a, what a brilliant time to introduce it and to come on. And it's taken off. And, and really, really cool story. Yeah, actually, it was pretty funny. When I came with the idea, when we were AXO, Sport, or mm-hmm. AXO America, um, everybody thought I was crazy. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, there's a few people in management here that were here at that time, and they thought it was a stupid idea. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, right. it, that's how it happened. But, you know, it took me – it didn't happen right away. It took me a while of convincing Jim that that was a really good idea. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of the basis to the idea was – in AXO, you were making riding gear for one person, mm-hmm. okay, the rider. So you have one pair of gloves, one helmet, et cetera. Of course, there was multiples of gear. Right. But you had all these people, especially in auto racing, because I had friends that were involved in NASCAR and IndyCar at that time mm-hmm. who were motorcycle enthusiasts. That's how I met them. And, you know, they... They had multiple people working on these cars, or they, you ended up having multiple people working on motorcycles. So there was a bigger market to market gloves to those people working on the yeah. motorcycle car, et cetera, instead of one set of gear. Yeah, there's one driver, one, one rider with 10 guys standing around. <laughs> yes, exactly. So that was the basis to that. And once, once I got Jim to a few car races and, and some of those things, mm-hmm. the lights started going on. And then, you know, we got it going. Um, in the beginning, we really sold to uh, the motorcycle shops, mm-hmm. which didn't make it go right away. Uh, really and truly, uh, as the podcast with Jim, when we got involved with the auto parts store people, yeah, that's when things really started happening for us. Yeah, um, it's it's funny because again, as a mechanic, and I, and I said this to Jim, you're like, I, I never thought about a glove, an apron, or a better pit board until you guys made them. And then you're like, why didn't I always want this? This is awesome. This has always been needed. You know, wow, well, I'm not getting my shirt all dirty and everything. I got an apron, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and it's got pockets yeah. and and this glove. I can grab this. Uh, this hot pipe and or whatever it is, and it just one of those things where you're like, why didn't we have this the whole my whole life? It's a great idea. Well, the, the funny thing is how that all started is is that being a when I worked for the factories, we used to get cotton gloves from Japan. Okay, uh, with our parts. Yep. And so the Japanese always worked with gloves that white cotton gloves on. Right. Through all the years uh, going all the way back to when I first started working at Suzuki Racing. Was that like the mud gloves of what racers would wear in mud gloves, kind of? Uh, yeah, yeah, but they didn't have the little silicone dots. They uh, were yeah. just cotton gloves. Just, just cotton. And you could you could flip them over, and it didn't matter which <laughs> hand you had them on. Right. So uh, what had happened is the U.S. government had passed a cotton embargo. And so this was right about mm, 89, 90, mm-hmm. uh, when we could no longer get cotton gloves that came with our parts. Right. Because we would order, you know, a whole bunch of them, and everybody would use them where any job they were doing that was dirty, mm-hmm. changing tires, whatever it may be. Well, that's how that whole process started. Where I said, "Hey, what if, you know, we, if I had a glove that you could change tires with on a race car, you could change tires on your motorcycle, you could do all these things." Mm-hmm. That's how that whole idea came along. So. Do you? I see you at some supercrosses every now and then. Um, even when I was a mechanic at Yamaha, 
Do you get too many Supercrosses and NASCAR races anymore? Is that still part of your gig? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, usually, I hit the Anaheim or it used to be, you know, Dodger Stadium. Yep. The Southern California ones. Uh, what happens is, of course, you know, Anaheim starts right away, right away in January. Well, as the month progresses, we're involved with the roll up to Daytona. Mm, okay. And the drag race, the NHRA thing starts kicking in also in the beginning of February. So I, you know, we get involved with the first part of it with the motorcycle thing. And then I'm around at the motorcycle races, seeing what we need to do or, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. touching base with people. And then what happens is the car thing starts up. So we probably go, uh, Oh, I would say to the car races probably about once every six to eight weeks. Okay. Unless we have customers. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we take customers to the races. Oh yeah. Um, okay. um because that we can do that with our sponsorship with NASCAR. Right. So we, we take people, be it from Lowe's or Napa or, you know, one of our big customers, and we take them behind the scenes, get them a pit pass, right. show them everything that's going on. So we do this whole tour with people at, at certain yeah. NASCAR races. When yeah. you go, do you still follow Supercross, Motocross? Are you still, are you still on, into it? Or? Uh, a lot of it's. Not so much. No. I mean, yeah, in the beginning of the year, I am. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, I still see Carmichael and those guys. Uh, I just saw Ricky at the, the SEMA show mm-hmm. uh, last month and things like that. So, yeah, I, I see these people and things like that, but what happens is my time gets divided. Right, right. And, and we have to go do this and that. Uh, you know, a lot of it's because um, a lot of our advertising programs are involved also with the NASCAR thing. Yep. Um, because it interacts with a lot of our auto parts customers or Lowe's or, you know, yeah. Walmart or yeah. all those people. So basically what's happened is it's gotten bigger and, you know, you have more territory you have to cross. What do you think of Supercross now when you go? What's your thoughts sitting back as a guy that was, you know, there when it started or pretty much when it started? No, I was at the first one. Oh, you were? Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. 74? Yeah, I was 74? at Suzuki, and I, I was at the first ones. Uh, okay. The one at, at L.A. Coliseum, the one in the Houston Astronome. Yep. Um, so what do you think it, now? <laughs> um, well, it hasn't changed much. Yeah. You know, it, it, it. yeah, the tracks have changed, and the motorcycles have changed, but, you know, you're still – it's still the same show. Mm-hmm. Um, some things has been made better, mm-hmm. and some things they haven't gotten out of the dark ages with. Right, right. I think I would agree yeah. with that. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they haven't, you know, hey, you know, backsides of a triple jump. You know, it doesn't have to be sharp. Mm-hmm. You know, think about the safety side of things. Um, way back when in the 80s, we had radios in the helmets that were one-way radios to the riders. Yeah. Why isn't it today? Because uh, of safety. You know, you're mm-hmm. coming around a triple jump corner. Yeah, of course, they have flagmen, they have lights, but, you know, you can tell the guy there's an accident going on. Yeah. You know, whatever it may be. And why they don't allow that, uh, I just don't understand because it really and truly is the next step. Probably don't have a and, sponsor for it yet. Someone to give them money for it. 
Yeah, of course. <laughs> right, <laughs> of course. right. <laughs> but I think from the safety side, it, it really, mm-hmm. truly, it, it really should be looked at, mm-hmm. uh, you know, from that point of view. Um, safety equipment. Uh, I really, because there's a few people here that were involved through the AXO days when we were building chest protectors, all those different things. Mm-hmm. Really and truly, there hasn't been huge forward movement you know yeah. uh yeah there's the neck brace okay but what have we really done i know there was a there was a chest tractor that came out a few years back it was the air it was made out of air you know it was all cushion little little pockets of air and it worked pretty good but it got hot and no one liked the way it looked and so then mm-hmm. no you don't see that anymore i thought i thought well there's something there's something and then it just went away mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so kind of kind of funny you're right though yeah, I mean, some things they they stayed the same. Yeah, you know that that that's the one thing I see that uh, hasn't changed. You know, they fill the stadiums. Yeah, which is good. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and things like that. But uh, you know, there's some other things they could move forward with. So you, um, what's the most obscure sport that mechanics wear gives gloves to, or, or or supports, or is there like swamp buggy racing or something out there, or what? What do you? What do you? Who, what's the weirdest thing you've ever dealt with, where someone says, "Hey, we need to make something for this reason or for that reason." Is there, is there something like that that comes to mind? Well, we, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there's there's at different times. There's all kinds of things that come to our doorstep, right? Um, especially at trade shows. Um, uh-huh. Especially like the automobile trade shows, you get a lot of racers that come and with their. DVDs or their resumes or, or, or all that. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I probably there's another gentleman that I work together with racing. His name is Ted Abden. Mm-hmm. And Ted, uh, you know, handles the most of the paperwork and all the dealings with this and that, and I handle the R&D side of things. And, right. and But some of the stuff we've seen, probably one of the weirdest was lawnmower racing, where oh, they yeah. actually race <laughs> lawnmowers. Yeah, they needed it was a, a racing association. <laughs> right, right. And, 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 you know, we've seen some stuff that's just funny. Yeah. yeah. I mean, really, really funny. And then, you know, actually, we've really had a big thing in the last, I'd say, year and a half where people have contacted us that are using our gloves, mm-hmm. and they have a disability. Mm, okay. Um, they had a hand, uh, either they weren't born with an arm or a hand, or mm-hmm. their hand was disformed at, at birth. I have a couple of guys with, with NASCAR teams that work in the shop that, that have that problem, and we actually build them oh, cool. special gloves. Yeah. So, yeah, we go through a process of getting a design and, and, and looking at photos of their hands and, and making them do a little what we call the kids with a turkey hand on mm-hmm. a plain piece of paper where they outline their hand and we do all that but we we seem to get one like every three weeks that hey can you help my friend <laughs> right right you know and, and all these things so you know we're, we're doing more and more of that or we have veterans that hey i use your gloves and i'm doing this job now and you know can we help you out so there's um yeah. there's an urban myth going on around about you and i don't even know if it's <laughs> true but i gotta ask okay so what I heard from one of my one of my stories, or and I, it's possible it's so old I don't even have the story right, but but Jim Gennard from Oakley, uh, you know, used to make grips. Um, mm-hmm. Apparently, 
you had a chance. I don't know who told me this, Wardy or RJ or, you know, somebody. You had a chance to invest some money into Oakley way back when, and you just said, no, this guy, no, I'm not, this guy's got grips. He's, he's not going anywhere. He's not doing anything. Um, is that true? No. Okay. I, I do know the story about that. Um, okay. I didn't have any real money at that time when Jim was trying to yep. get money. You could have been I, a millionaire. You could have been a millionaire, Brian. <laughs> well, I, I did get lucky. I did get stocks mm. in the Oakley days. Okay. Just be, uh, you know, I got. I was on the athletic program there, and they offered me stocks. Okay. Before it was, and uh, actually, I did very well because um, it it uh, doubled yeah. in price. They went public, right? They went public. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It doubled in price, and then it doubled the shares. It split halved. Mm-hmm. And so when uh, Lexana bought them out, they paid everybody off that had uh, Oakley stock. Oh, okay. So there is some truth in the sense that, but you turned Jim down. It's that you you no. did get in. <laughs> okay. No, where that story comes from is Bob Smith that owned Smith Goggles. Yep. At the time, Jim Gennard had his goggle mold, and this is like maybe the late seventies. Mm-hmm. And Jim didn't think he could afford to pay for the goggle mold he owed money on, which mm-hmm. at that time, goggle molds were like $50,000 or something to have made. Right. And he tried to sell it, and uh, those guys turned him down. Smith said, we don't want this mold. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we didn't want to do it. We already have our thing. Right. Well, then, of course, Jim turned it all around. Mm. I mean, I-, I tell his success story all the time. Right. I go, hey, I, I knew this guy, and I can remember the Anaheim event when he was sneaking around between the trucks with a little white box with the first eye shades. Right, right. And he wanted RJ to wear those on the podium, which he did that day. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Jim had, you know, it's a great success story. It's crazy great. that Oakley and Mechanics Wear, two companies that – uh, are multi multi million dollar companies that uh, are known worldwide. Uh, both had their roots. Their tiny little roots started all in motocross. It's kind of kind of cool. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, it is. But there's another story along those lines. Uh, I don't remember if you uh, Rock Shocks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There was a guy there that was a motocross mechanic, Paul Turner. Yeah, that's right. Right. I worked with Paul. He worked on Bailey's bikes at Honda. Mm-hmm. And then Paul went on to do three-wheeler pipes and engine modifications. Right. Well, he went on to start Rock Shocks with Steve Simon from Simon's Simon, Simon's at the cabs, right. Yeah. Yep. And, uh... Yeah, good point. Never thought of that. Right. And they're huge, right? And, and they, you know, when they sold their company, it was worth millions. And, uh, you know, they're another great success story. They're now hanging out in Hawaii full-time. Um, uh, no, I think, yeah, I don't know. I, once in a while I hear Paul's name in the bicycle industry. He's up to doing something, but, you know. Let's yeah. um, let's get into DeLorean and go back in time. Um, now, the first, obviously, the uh, uh, first time I ever heard of Brian Lunas, you were at Factory Honda in the early 80s, uh, and, um, you know, that was when you really started, to me anyways, hitting the magazines and everything else. But I want to go further back than that. Like you mentioned, Suzuki, wh- where did you grow up? How did you – I was a failed motocross racer. That's how I became a mechanic. So is that is that your story, or were you always in mechanics? And, and when did you get your first job and all that? Can you, can you 
get into that a little bit? Sure. So <laughs> I was uh, a, an ex-motocross rider or enduro rider first. Mm-hmm. Uh, motocross had just started up um, years in my early years. Um, you know, I actually belonged to a club. I grew up in a uh, northern town of Illinois, okay. just outside Chicago, up on about 12 miles from the Wisconsin-Illinois border, a mm-hmm. little place called McHenry, Illinois. And uh, there was a handful of us friends that we all raced and traveled all over the Midwest to race Enduros and hair scrambles and all those type of things. Mm-hmm. And then the motocross thing had started and, and kind of started gathering uh, momentum. I had belonged to a club, which was called the Slowpokes, mm-hmm. and we had one of the earlier Interam races that had uh, Aki Janssen, you know, uh, Heike, yep. all these guys came, and the only guy that we didn't have, Joel, and somebody else didn't come because they sent him to Canada for another race. That's when Edison Dye was putting on the yeah. Interam. The Interams, yeah. Yeah. So that was really my first taste of that. And then uh, I was a racer. You know, I raced snowmobiles at the factory level uh, for a while. Oh, cool. Yeah. And then um, I got drafted in the service during the Vietnam War. Oh, okay. So that ended my racing career. Mm-hmm. And when I came back out, I went to work for a, a snowmobile, motorcycle, Kawasaki dealer uh, up where my parents lived in Wisconsin. And uh, I got involved, you know, I was basically, you had to work on your bike to race. Yeah. So I had learned my knowledge of working on motorcycles and snowmobiles. And so that's where my background started from. Mm -hmm. And uh, one day uh, in the little town I was living in, Suzuki had rented the snowmobile track to do some testing because uh, Suzuki was getting involved in snowmobiles. Oh, okay. And uh, there were some guys there, and we had heard they were looking for some test riders. So a kid I was helping on his snowmobiles to race went out there, and he started uh, doing test riding for him. Well, I got to know the guys from Suzuki, who in turn happened to be the same people who were doing the motorcycle racing. Yeah. And so... You just went out there know, and were like, hey, I'll ride for you, drive. I'll, I'll ride one of these? I ended up only riding it a little while, and then, you know, they go, hey, we're going to this race nearby. You know where it is? Yeah, yeah, I'll be there. So I kind of gave them some background because I had raced snowmobiles Uh, and knew a fair amount about them and how to set them up. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and then as we talk more and more, I had a background in motorcycles and working on motorcycles. So those guys went away because they were off to get ready for Daytona with the road race side of business. Yeah. And I get a call just before Daytona, and they said, hey, um, would you be interested in moving to California and working for Suzuki Racing? Oh, wow. I go, just like that. hey, I'm tired of being freezing here in Wisconsin. Right. You don't have to ask me twice. So basically that's, you know, they said, hey, bring your stuff, bring your clothing, bring your tools, come to Daytona, and you're driving back from Daytona to California. Wow, just like that. A, a little kid. Just like that. A kid from uh-huh. a little town in Illinois. <laughs> that's that's mm-hmm. how you get your break. That's how, wow. And so. I ended up in Daytona at the garages. Mm-hmm. That, that one morning there, they opened the garages, and there was all these three-cylinder 750 Suzukis, and down at the end was a two-cylinder air-cooled 500. They go, 
down there, go work with the other mechanic on that 500. Okay. And uh, I went down there and uh, went to work on Jeff Perry's bike, yeah. who, uh, that goes way, way back in that the name, 70s. That name I don't recognize, but I'm, no, I'm no, a moto no. guy. And then, uh, you know, um, came back, and in those days, we did everything. Mm-hmm. It, it literally, they would come in, and you would insert another cassette in your head. Yeah, okay, yeah. this <laughs> afternoon, we're going to work on motocross bikes. Yep. Because at that time, there wasn't really a set series. Right, right. And uh, at that time, we had John DeSoto mm-hmm. doing the uh, motocross and off-road stuff, and Richard Thorwaldson. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I've heard of those. Yeah. 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 So uh, we'd do that, and then, you know, they'd come in the next day and say, hey, you got to drag out the road racers, work on the road racers. <laughs> We're going to have a tire test. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. So we, we would be involved with everything. So in the beginning, you know, you did everything there at Suzuki. And then after that, um, they hired Mike Runyard. I worked with Mike. Yeah. And then after Mike, um, you started work with, you started gravitating more towards just moto at this point or later on. Yeah. yeah what had happened yeah. is there were sort of to be more races. I mean, John was doing like the Elsinore grand prix. Right. I remember going out for that and, uh, doing that. And it was like the first RM two fifty production bike that was here. We had work bikes in those days already. They were old yeah. hand-me-downs. Uh, but uh, we kicked a RM250 out of the crate, and John raced it at Elsinore. Geez, uh, um, I had no idea you went this far back, Brian, which I guess is a nice way of saying I had no idea you're that old. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what I mean, though? I honestly didn't know. Like, this is, yeah, this is at the very beginning of, of, yeah. of motocross supercross, you know? Yeah, yeah. It, it's actually pretty interesting because uh, Dave Arnold had a retirement party at Honda this spring right. or, or this summer, and some people called me up, and there was a few of us that had been around through the Honda days there, and uh, we, Cliff White was there, and okay. uh, Roger was there, and and a couple of the fabricators that were behind the scenes and, and mm-hmm. uh, that. And, you know, we were all discussing that we were pretty lucky that when we started in the business, the shocks were right all the way at the back of the swing arm. Yeah. Two shocks. Right. And then we were involved in those days. You could cut bikes up and do whatever, and you, you had to. You had to know how to fabricate. You know, you had to weld, and you know. Um, yeah. Then the shocks got moved forward. You know, Mako yeah. showed up at a Trans Am race, and they had their shocks move all the way forward, and we were scrambling on the road. <laughs> you were like, "Holy shit! Look at that!" <laughs> yeah, we had to cut the frames and make better mounts, and we moved the shocks forward, and then. I remember having to get on an airplane from back east somewhere and find springs that would actually work in that position. Right, up, more, more and, up front, right. Yeah, and, and I had to find, I ended up finding some old Triumph springs that were the right, heavy enough spring rate. So, <laughs> so we had been involved with all that, and then, of course, you know, the single shock and, and the linkage systems, and, you know, all of us were involved with that, and, and you know, at that, at that time. So you, uh, it was pretty cool. You, uh, you weren't the guy at Suzuki in the mid-70s who looked at this kid on a, from the California desert, uh, I think 339 or Bob Hanna, and said, nah, he'll never be nothing. You weren't that guy? No. <laughs> no, the funny story about Bob was Bob, yeah. they had hired, hired Bob to work in the service department, which was next door to the racing department. Okay. That's how far I knew Bob. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And he, they hired him and gave him a gas card and a van and bikes. Mm-hmm. And um, he, um, 
he would race locally. Yeah. That's how that all happened. But there's backing up a little bit further, we first saw Bob when uh, Billy Grossi was working for me and Tony D was riding for us at uh-huh. that time. Yeah. And they were testing new production bikes at Saddleback on Saturday. And then we went to Carlsbad the next day on Sunday to uh, we had a bunch of local riders and our riders uh, riding different model RMs. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was this kid they had hired to ride one of the classes, and uh, he was a wild man. <laughs> and it turned out it was Hannah. Right. And then when he wasn't riding one of ours, he was riding this Husky. And he was, like, flying off the bike and just, <laughs> that's when I first ran into Bob. But, yeah, like, that I, I knew Bob all the way back from the early Suzuki days. And then, you know, Bob had an offer from Yamaha, and Suzuki didn't believe him. And, <laughs> you know, Bob went on to go to Yamaha and then win the championship there in 76. So you must uh, have worked with Keith at Suzuki then, Keith McCarty. Keith was working in the parts department when we got him out of the warehouse, and he started working with us in the racing department. Yeah, I traveled with Keith for a number of years in the same box van. Uh, We shared a room. Yeah. yeah. Years later, he would hire you as his boss, as as your boss at Yamaha. That's funny. Yeah, Um, Yeah, he did. Yeah, he was Tony D's mechanic uh, at the time. That's right. Um, Mm -hmm. So who are you working for at Suzuki? You mentioned some of the names, but when do you – how much success do you have? Who are you working for? When do you go to Honda? Um, so backing up a little bit, Mm -hmm. I worked at Suzuki for about six and a half years. The last rider I had there was Billy Grossi. Billy had, Billy had broken his tibia or fibia twice. He was racing with two rod in each leg at one point. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I, I, is that sugar bear? Is that? Yeah, that was sugar Sugar bear. Bear. Tony D gave him that name. Okay. And, um, so uh, I actually went to work at Scott USA for a little while. Oh, you did? Oh, I didn't even yeah, know. Yeah, okay. there was uh, Scott Boyer and a guy named Dick Kreider were at Scott USA at that time. Mm-hmm. And I had gotten to know those guys, and they said, hey, you know, you ever think about not doing this? And I, at that time, I go, yeah, what do you got? Yeah. And they said, well, you know, you moved to Sun Valley, and, you know, we got this goggle program. So basically, I set up the whole world competition thing for Scott USA for motorcycles. Oh wow! Okay, so you were and, were you just tired of being a mechanic a little bit? Was it a better pay? Was it a better job? Uh, it was or? less hours and okay. it's just different. Yep. yep. And uh, so I went and did that. And then during that time, the other thing that lured me in on was the uh, plastic boot they were working on. Oh, yeah. yeah. So they had a rigid some early prototypes. And then, uh, you know, I was down in the lab making porn plastic parts and straps and yeah. doing all kinds of things. Did that, and then, uh, yeah, um, actually the roll-off idea came from my, it was my idea. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I, uh, we had this being, you know, we were doing goggles and guys were having problems with tear-offs or right. whatever, and I said, what if, if we had something would go across the, the lens. Yeah. And I said, you know, it'll work exactly the same as a 35 millimeter film canister. Film can, right, right. And that's what they originally started at. And some of the stuff we had a lever at one t- in the beginning, mm-hmm. but you would pull the goggles off your face when you hit the lever. <laughs> and then, of course, it had a cord, which stayed for a long time. And then they went electronic after a while. Yeah, after you got it. Right, left. Yeah. 
and things like that. So I did that for probably a year, year and a half, and uh, Honda started calling me from Europe. Mm -hmm. And they said, hey, we'd like you to come work in Europe uh, on the GPs, on the Honda 500 GP team. Yeah. I said, nah, I got a pretty good deal here. You know, I I can do what I want. I ski, I ride my motorcycle, whatever. Right. Nah, nah, nah. So they finally convinced me to go work for Graham Noyce. Oh, okay. Well, this was uh, like almost mid-season. Was he, but was he the champion yeah. yet, or was he defending? No, okay. no, no, no. Oh, before then. No, yeah. he wasn't. Um, so I basically got hired to straighten him out because <laughs> he was drinking and doing all kinds of things. And uh, Yeah, he was kind of so, a playboy. Uh, kind of one play afternoon, boy, right? I went yeah. into American Honda and signed my contract. They go, here's these tools you need to take there because they're, they need these. Mm-hmm. And I got on an airplane and landed in Frankfurt, and uh, someone picked me up in a van, drove to Luxembourg, <laughs> stayed the night in the hotel, got to the racetrack on Saturday morning. They open up the tent and go, there's your bike. Have at it. Wow. Yeah. That's and it. so. Uh, what year would this have been? Um, I want to say 78, because uh, Brad Lackey was there. Yeah. And Brad... Hadn't decided to leave, but he was he was a teammate of ours at that time. Okay, and uh, yeah, Noyce was kind of like a playboy of the of the yes. time, right? Like that, that's what his, yeah. his nickname was. Uh, yeah, I forget what his nickname was. Something. Jughead. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. But he was a great guy. I yeah. mean, he was, but he would like drink too much and carry on and right. things like that. Right. Um, but uh, during that time, we ended up winning the British Championship. Okay. Because he was still raced those, so right. we would do that and. He was living in Belgium, so we would travel from Frankfurt to do all that. So did you like I did it? that until yeah. the and then came back. We did the Trans Am series, and then uh, Brad left. Yeah, he went back to Cowie or Suzuki. I don't remember at that time, but um, you know, Brad left, and uh, so then um, you know they wanted me to work with uh, Andre Malherb. Okay, right? yeah, and I said. Andre doesn't speak English, even. <laughs> That's not a good deal. Right, right. Well, at that time, Gunnar Lingstrom was running the American Honda team, and mm-hmm. I knew Gunnar from doing all the Honda stuff. Right. And uh, he said, you know, why don't you stay here? We're going to hire some new kids and doing all this. Well, oh. at that time, they had about seven factory riders. Yeah. And uh, so uh, in 79, I came back to the States. I had also met my wife around that time, so... It was probably a good idea. I stuck around it was yeah. before we were married. And uh, I ran a 125 with a 23-inch front wheel uh-huh. with uh, Warren Reed. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it was the worst motorcycle I've probably ever worked on my whole life. The uh, the time in Europe, too, I always – and whenever I do these with guys like yourself that have been there, I've been, I go to Europe every year. I've been there tons of times. When you went to Europe, this was Europe. This was – there's no internet. There's different borders, machine guns. <laughs> this yeah, is, customs this is, right. everywhere. This you, is a different you time. You customs three or four times a day in different countries. Right. Yeah. This is a different time than year to, than, than going now. Um, yeah. What's well, kind of a neat experience for sure, especially like you said, like uh, Andre Malaire went on to win world titles. Noyce won a world title. And mm-hmm. Europe, Europe was still the place to be when you were yeah. there. It was still like cool. Um to, to, to go there and win a world title. So, 
Every, everybody, the mechanics and the riders all wanted to go to Europe in those days. Yeah. Now you can't get anybody to go to Europe. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> you know, unless yeah. your career's over. Yeah, right. right. Uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, uh, that uh, that was the uh, thing. And, I, you know, came back and, you know, we had a horrible time. I spent a lot of all-nighters uh, trying to keep that bike because the engines were crack and break and the frames. And, mm-hmm. yeah, we had a nothing. And, and Warren went on to uh, Kawasaki, and at that, and that following year, in 80, we hired Donnie Hansen, mm-hmm. David Bailey, Johnny O'Mara, yeah. and we had a handful of other guys. And, uh, you know, we had a big, full team. Yeah. Plus, we had a huge support team. Who did you work for then? Uh, I went to work for Donnie Hansen. For Hansen, okay. Yeah. Um, um, so you were there in... Uh, 81 for the Nations. Yes. And, uh, and of course, also, too, 82, you guys win both titles. Yep. And uh, so uh, this first, I've, and I've done this, I've done one of these, I've done two of these with Dave Arnold. In, incredible memory on that guy, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. Motocross the Nations, 1981, you go there. Uh, did you think you they could win? They didn't want us. Did, they didn't, yeah. Did you think you could win? I mean, was it, I mean, were you guys pretty, were you pretty, pretty surprised? Well, because I'd been to that track a number of times yep. when I worked, it, it, it worked over there. Yeah, it's a sandy thing. When they said we were going to Lomo, I go, uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they literally looks like bomb craters at that place, yeah. guys. Right. And, and so, but we had, you know, we had Chuck Sun, who was a sand rider. Yeah. And we had uh, Daniel Laporte, who also came from the desert sand. Yeah. And I go, mm. and then Donnie rode it at Indian Dunes. Forever, right. which was the sand track. And, um, you know, I go, well, we got any, anybody that can do this. These guys can do it. These will be the guys, right, right. Yeah, and but it was more about, you know, they didn't want to pay us, start money, mm-hmm. and they, they thought we had an inferior team, and they didn't want to let us ride. And uh, so, you know, a lot of that Roger and Dave had to deal with in the backside. Mm-hmm. We, on the mechanical side had to deal with, we had air-cooled engines still. And that deep sand, yeah. he didn't like those engines. Yeah. I mean, literally, we were rebuilding the top ends in those things between motos. Jeez, yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. Um, but the I- interesting that came out of that race was we discovered Nicosil to coat the cylinder liners with. What do you mean you because, discovered it? Because they were using Nicosil on Yamaha road racers. Oh, okay. So we were, Dave went off to get the cylinders reboard. Again. And he ran Again. across this <laughs> tuner guy yeah. that said, you know, they use this system on a, a, with mall pistons. It's Nicosil. They use them in Porsche. All the Porsche engines are Nicosil. Uh-huh. That's how we discovered it. So wow. we shipped the cylinders off. Before the 500 event, Dave and I fly to Germany, go down to Stuttgart. There's this little shop out the back of the mall factory. We get our cylinders, take them back, and, you know, off we go. And, you know, we ran Nicosil cylinders as a factory part for a handful of years before anybody ever saw it in production. Nothing like debuting something like that, the motocross the nations. Ah, We hope it works. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. No, it was hard. It yeah. was really hard. Right, right. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but, yeah, no, that was quite experience, winning with all those young guys right. that didn't have any European experience to speak of. 
and everything else. Yeah, like, yeah, o- and like then Osho, said, 80, yeah. Osho said he had never ridden a 500 before. They're like, hey, here you go, kid. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, oh, uh, yeah, arms like rubber bands. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, of course, in 82, Danny, we won the, you know, Supercross yeah. title. Yeah. And then we also won the uh, outdoor national title. And uh, then Donnie got hurt when we went back to do the motocross and trophy donations. Now, uh, I've heard a lot about Donnie's crash. It effectively ended his career when he's on top of the world. Um, did you see it? What happened? I've heard two or three versions of it. Yes, I was there. Okay, what, um, how did he crash? What was going on was um, him and Magoo were chasing each other around this test track. Mm-hmm. And I, want, I forgot whose test, it was a German rider's test track in this little town right next to the Autobahn. Okay. I mean, you're seeing all these cars flying by, and yeah, yeah. here's this track, right? And um, they were racing each other, and what happened was Donnie decided to back off and kind of, you know, was going to slow down. Mm-hmm. And he hit these triple-type jumps, and they weren't like what we see in a Supercross or Outdoors right now, yeah. but they were pretty good, and they were both flying across. Yeah. And what happened is he came up short. Oh, okay. And what we actually had photos of it. There happened to be a, a Honda factory guy that worked with the GP side that was driving the trucks with us and okay. helping us. Yeah. He happened to have his camera out that day, was a, and it was a motor drive. And he said for some reason he saw him coming, and for some reason he held the button down. Oh, yeah. And so we had all these sequence of photos of Donnie getting off, but the worst of what happened to Donnie was there was a photo of him being, he was uh, parallel to the racetrack, standing straight up and down on this jump. There was dirt coming off the toe of his one boot over his head. That's how fast he was going. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So um, my wife was with me in Europe at that time, and then, of course, everything happened to Donnie, and... She took the helmet. They said, bring the helmet back. Uh-huh. And so she did. And, you know, we had the photos, and they go, right after that, that's what did Donnie in because his head hit the ground so hard. Yeah. That's what caused his, you know, the fluid in his brain and yeah. his gray matter hit his skull. And, you know. Jeez. But, uh, did you think he was going to die? Was it that scary? Yeah. Was it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, honestly, when I ran to him, mm-hmm. uh, Cliff White was with me that day there. And when both of us ran up to him, we thought he was having a heart attack. Yeah, yeah. And uh, luckily, whoever was with us ran into town because it was really close, and they got the local doctor. Mm -hmm. And he came out. In the meantime, somebody called the Audubon helicopter guys. Yeah, yeah. And they landed on the property. And they showed up and, you know, were like, you know, normally in those days you had to explain how to take the helmet off of somebody. Right. The people were involved. Oh, no. These guys had it. Yeah. They knew exactly. They go, no, no, we have it. Yeah, yeah. They loaded them up, took them to the hospital in Stuttgart. What was great about it, at that time there was a famous, and I forgot which Formula One driver was there, in the intensive care unit. Okay. At the same hospital. Yeah. But, uh you know, we were still there. I ended up staying for the, uh, you know, the other event, and yeah, you know, we Bailey, went a couple times. Bailey to, got flown. Uh, visit Bailey, him. Bailey got flown in, I think. Right? I think it was Bailey that got the call. Uh, I don't remember who yeah. we flew in that time. Yeah. Wow. Pretty, I, it might have been. Yeah. Pretty scary. And uh, yeah. 
So, you know, and you see him in intensive care and you're going, he's not going to make it. Right. Jeez. He's not going to make it, yeah. you know, and uh, it was really sad because he was such a great guy. Yeah. And he worked so hard. He had a hell of a work ethic. Yeah, like, you know, what, like, you, know you never yeah. know what would have happened. Like, what would, he, so he comes out in 83, he's the number one guy, he's on a works Honda, he's got you wrenching for him. Um, you know, he could have won another titles. You know what I mean? Like, it was, uh, you never know, yeah. one of those big what ifs in motocross. Um, yeah, and the, and the bikes at that time were also. Uh, that's when the single shock stuff was coming along, and yep. you know we were developing all that. Um, we had water cooled bikes by that time the following year, and yeah. you know, yeah, no, it was uh, pretty cool. You um, and I and I don't, I could be mistaken, but I think one of the fallback, one of the fallbacks of Donnie's accident was that they had room to hire Hannah for '83. Yeah. Like I don't know if that was going if that would have happened. If, no, it probably wouldn't have, but they, it, you know, Donnie's uh, accident brought Bob in, and then, uh, you know, yeah. So I knew Bob for all these years. You know, he's always been a friend, and so, so uh, you know, one of the we, one of the most uh, sorry to interrupt you. One of the one of the tragic things, or not tragic, but eighty three, eighty four. There's probably no one faster in American motocross than Bob Hanna, but there's also no one more fragile, and he doesn't win a title, but he wins a t- shit ton of races. Yes. Um, had it been frustrating for you? Uh, yeah. Yeah. But we, wa- we were killing him. I mean, yeah. he would lap all the way to second place in outdoor nationals. Yeah. Bob Oliver, who you know at Yamaha, and I worked yeah. with at Yamaha. I mean, Bob told me one time there was no one who could touch Bob in 83. Nobody. But he, not on that bike. Yeah, no. He hit a fence, and he—I mean, he—he'd hated the Yamahas, and getting to Honda must have just been on a works bike. Must have just been incredible for him. But uh, hit a fence one year, uh, hurt his wrist one year, just couldn't pull a title off. But yeah, it—it—it it, it, it happened. You mm-hmm. know, it just happened. I mean, Bob had a great career at Yamaha, and then he came there, and he was motivated to beat Yamaha. Right. He, right. I mean, he was, and and we at that time we had some really great equipment. I, I mean. Yeah. And the factory loved Bob because Bob would, hey, he would, to this day, Bob is one of, probably one of the greater guys they worked with about understanding the bike because literally you could change the linkage on the bike and not tell him. And he'd come back in and he would take a stick in the dirt and draw this graph. And he'd go, this one does this, yeah. and the one before that do that. And the Japanese would look at each other and they'd look at their paper and they'd go, that's exactly right. <laughs> See, and he would do the same thing with exhaust pipes and gearboxes. I always thought he just pinned it and held on, but apparently not. No, 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 no. He he was excellent that way, and uh, he uh, he was also very fanatical about where his handlebars were. Oh, was he? Yeah, yeah. I actually had to build a jig that put positioned his bars in the exact same spot every time. I worked. And, uh, I worked with on a team with Larry Ward once, and Larry's mechanic could never had to. If he took the bars off, he had to take them off from the bottom, from the mounts. And Larry used the same pair of bars for about eight months. It was incredible. I just never understood. But that was Larry uh, Ward. <laughs> Actually, I had to make a jig that went into the front num- number plate screw in the top triple clamp. <laughs> Did you really? Huh? <laughs> yeah, it screwed in there, and it. It you know we fabbed it up at Honda with all our yeah all the people we had for fabrication and machining. And, uh, you know, we made this thing, and I had a dial caliper, and I'd go, okay, it's got to be this many millimeters, and this has got to be here, and yeah. But Bob, as a, a person, 
mm-hmm. and as a, a competitor. Yeah. He was comp- he's competitive in everything he does, and the guy is the most self-motivating guy. Yeah. I mean, I had so much fun with Bob, but, you know, at, at one time I kept five motorcycles running at all times for him. Right, right. Because he, he would go out and run, you know, <laughs> you know, a great number of ga- gallons of gas out in the desert. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we had bikes at his house in, in Idaho. And we had bikes here in California. And then we had bikes on the road for him. And, uh, you know, he was uh, really good that way. What, did you get along with him all the time? I imagine he'd be. I. I mean, he seems like a great guy, and but I, 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 I could just see maybe like a guy who is not afraid to. There's no filter there. So was there any sort of fights, or did you guys always get along? Uh, it's good. We we're both one and the same. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's uh, <laughs> right, right. It, we both had thick skin, and it, it, well, Bevo was around, and John Savitsky at that time, right? And so it was just an ongoing comedy all the time. Everybody <laughs> right, right. was. Busting, busting each yeah. other or whatever, but you know, Bob at that time he was it would take three rolls of tape to tape up his ankles so really, every time really, he rode. Yeah, just beat up. And yeah, and, and you know, and he had problems with his wrists, and he would tape them up. But you know, the guy would do it every time. And man, he'd be out there in the mornings. Hey, we're running at seven thirty, and then we're, I'm going to do this, and then we're going to then we're going to go ride at this time in the afternoon. And everything was done with a schedule, and he had a. He had a yellow notepad, and he kept notes, and he wrote things down, and wow. you know he's great. And then, uh, when did you know, he, when did he give you the Ferrari? Ferrari, I got in nineteen eighty three. He just like said, "What? What? But what, what?" I mean, I I struggled to got I struggled to get three hundred dollars out of some of my riders <laughs> as a mechanic. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a bit of a difference about Bob because Bob had taken really good care of Keith. Yeah, and Bob understand that I was putting a lot of effort in. Right. And uh, he he recognized that, and he, and he was good about that. You know, so he, I was gone from my family. My daughter was quite young at that time, and, and, and you know, and he was good to me, and, and I was motivated to do whatever he needed to do. You know, and he he always took care of me. And I can remember when Bob picked up the dinner tab, no matter who was at the table. Oh yeah, wait, I, uh, I got to get back to this Ferrari. I got to get back to this Ferrari. Was it okay. new? Was it new, or was it one of his? No, it was brand new. Brand new. So, he, so what how does he, how does he we give you this Ferrari? We were a race in Texas one day, okay. and he upgraded me to first class with yeah. him. And he's sitting there, and he goes, hey, what do you think about you know the money I owe you? I said, well, I've been looking at this 930 Porsche that a friend of both of ours had. Uh-huh. And he goes, nah, you don't want that. So, Bob, Eddie Cole, for the money Eddie Cole owed Bob for answer. Okay. He got Bob, at least Bob, uh, a Ferrari. Okay. And so so right after that, Bob goes, he calls me up and he says, you need to go down to this building that's actually across where Yamaha is in Cyprus right yeah. now. Yeah. It, and it turned out to be Ferrari North America. Okay. And so I went in there and he says, go look at this yellow car. So I went in there with my wife and we sat in the car and, yeah, this is pretty nice. Fired mm-hmm. it up. And it's like, Wow. It had a few miles on it, but only a few because they used it in some commercials. Okay, yeah. And photo shoots. And I go, yeah, this, you know, he calls <laughs> me back that night. He goes, what do you think? You're like, yeah, it's Ferrari. <laughs> I go, yeah, it's pretty nice. You know, it, it's real nice. So he, next day he calls me back and he says, hey, go to the Ferrari dealer on Friday. Bring money to pay for the tax and license. Yeah. Wow. I go, okay. So 
Yeah, it was part of a three-year deal he had, you know, mm-hmm. and he was right up front. Hey, you know, you do this, this is what it is. Yeah, yeah. And, and Bob was like that, you know, did and you, uh, that's how he ended up with the Ferrari. How long did you keep it, the Ferrari for? Uh, maybe five years, maybe yeah. a little bit longer. Yeah, did you drive it every now and then, or was it like oh, a... Oh, yeah, 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 okay. yeah, yeah, I did drive it. Uh, you know, you're always reluctant. It was this fly yellow, which was really bright. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the cops always what, saw it, whatever. Was it like, but, yeah, sometimes Bob and I would r- run around in our cars and laugh and was it, um, do all that. But, uh, yeah, no, it was great. And then what happened was I took it to an AMA Awards banquet, at the Queen Mary, and uh-huh. it was foggy. Yep. And uh, took it home the next morning. It was wet, and so I took it out. And I was washing it, and discovered somebody had so- uh, sat on the roof of it oh. and scratched the hood. Yeah. That's not too good. Yeah. I-, I was upset. Right. By the time I moved to the back of the car, they had caved in the engine cover. Jeez. They'd done the same thing. So I washed the car, put it in the garage, and somebody. Some dealer from Portland, a Ferrari dealer, came to send his mechanic down and bought it for me. Oh, okay. Yeah, so... Uh, you got that bonus from Bob and Cash eventually, at some point. Yeah, yeah. Actually, it's a swimming pool in my backyard right now. <laughs> I I wish some of my old riders would be listening to this right now. Lunas got a Ferrari. But, but I also have to say, Ricky Johnson was very good to me also. Was he? But no I mean, Ferrari, though. I mean, come on. Um, that's awesome. That's an awesome story. I, I love to hear that. I know the magazines, MXA said it, you know, back yeah. in the day. Hey, did you not get along with MXA, Jody? No. No, we, could, we didn't get along with Jody. Jody didn't get along with most all the factory people. I could tell that because there was a lot of sarcastic comments about Brian Lewis and MXA growing up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, the thing was is Jody would come in. He, Jody had uh, probably the easiest way to explain it. He had no respect for anyone mm-hmm. in the motorcycle thing. He thought because he was Jody that he could do and say whatever he want and write in articles. Mm-hmm. And there's actually another story to that what went on at Honda at one time on the production side. Right. Um, Jody would just march into the pit area and start taking pictures of works bikes and works parts. Yeah. Well, our employers did not like that. No. And be it from Honda to Yamaha to Suzuki to Kawasaki, nobody liked that. And and then he would send, when he got to be Jody wasn't allowed in, in one form or another, yeah. he would then send young kids in with cameras, and they would just walk in and start taking photos. Yeah, yeah. Well, then that's that's when it all started. But, yeah, no, there was this, that's what went on there. Yeah, uh-huh. he, he just, you know. Right. Um, he, he's mellowed over the years. I see him every so often up here in Valencia. But, yeah, I mean, Jim Jim spoke about him in his podcast, and, and, and Jim said MXA was a big, you know, big help to AXO uh, just for the ads and running ads and, you know, building the image. Um, uh, so also, too, works bikes. Um, I mean, I, I was a factory mechanic, but there's no comparing anything to Honda's works bikes, and you were lucky enough to work on them year after year after year. Um, the 85, perhaps, being the trickiest one ever. Um, Ronnie Lachine's 125 was pretty sweet. And the lower tanks, the fuel pumps, uh, the one-piece uh, subframes. What was it like to work on those things? Would would you get them? I heard you got them shipped to you in a boxes and from Japan. Like, here's a complete bike. Yes. And, the bikes would come complete, mm-hmm. and then the parts would come at the same time. Yeah. And at times, there would be this literally this huge pile of titanium on the floor. 
And uh, <clears throat> that was your spare titanium. That wasn't the titanium was on the bike already. Yeah, yeah. yeah so you yeah. go through, measure your bolts, which ones you needed and everything else. and Yeah, probably yeah. the greatest bike that that we ever had at Honda was that uh, pumper tank model. Yeah. And uh, literally we could uh, change tanks and have the rider ride it and not tell them, and they could come back and tell us this isn't the one with the pumper tank. Really, huh? Yeah. Because the gravity was the, right. uh, the center of gravity was so low, yeah, and then it drew all the air through the right behind the handlebars, mm-hmm. and the tank was hollow, and then it went into the monocoque, yeah, which was the air cleaner, right, right, and uh, you know it, it, it was really great that way. You guys and, are just uh, killing everybody had, with bikes. You're just killing other guys with bikes, like just nothing else yeah. out there. Yeah, no, it was pretty cool. Uh, it was a very cool bike. Bailey once told me, and I think Omera kind of backed them up 84 bikes better than the 85 though like motor suspension I mean, do you remember anybody complaining i mean i don't remember was it was okay. 85 when we went to the production rule 86 went to production rule so okay 80, that's yeah. when ricky came to write for me that's right, right 86 right. yeah yeah the 84 was a carryover from the 83 okay yeah yeah they're they're right about that mm-hmm. I, I have to say but that bikes in the right in that small era mm-hmm. they were fabulous they really were, and in that period, they would also you'd go, man, there's something wrong with this thing. Mm-hmm. And at that time, we could we would take it back to the shop, put it on the jig, and change the steering head angle. <laughs> really, just like that? Oh huh? yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a um, a jig that we made off of drawings from Japan. Mm-hmm. It was this huge thing; you wouldn't move it around easy. Right. And, and but you could change the foot pegs, you could change all that stuff around. Wow. Yeah, but we used to change the steering head angle. Or we moved the steering head yeah. trying to change, you know, uh, uh, CG, right. you, know, uh, you know, wheelbase, trying to get bikes to handle different or better. And, and uh, that's, you know. Yeah, it's, that's, that's, a, that's an era that will never be back and was, was no. a golden no. era, you know. Um, I, I always notice Hannah, too. He, he liked the rear drum. He liked the rear drum brake. Front drum brake. Oh, front drum. Yeah. 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 They actually had to make fork sliders that were still made with the lugs for the drum brake. Right. The reason he liked that was the progression feel of the brake. Mm-hmm. And at that time, we had dual cam mm-hmm. front brakes, yeah. like the road racers did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and Bob liked that. And so there was this whole process of trying to get the hydraulic brake to make Bob happy. And so finally one day I go to the engineers, I go, do you have the same pad material like you use on the road racers? Mm-hmm. Oh, we have this whole selection for road racers, and then we got this, and we got that, and right, we got right. this. What's the grippiest stuff you got that's most progressive? Well, motocross engineers didn't have it, but they got it. They came back and they go, well, we got this, and we got that. I go, "Yeah, we want this one, this one. Once we got that pad to work and the piston yeah. diameter on the master cylinder right. and the bleed hole, he was happy. It was that particular, it though. While. It was that particular, though. He needed a, a piston size, a brake pad material, bleed hole, everything yeah. had to be. <laughs> it, well, it's about the feel. Yeah. Because he used a lot of front brake. Did he, yeah. Um, uh, hey, I know we've gone a little while. I haven't even touched into your career. Do you have some time to keep going, or do you want to do it? Yeah, a... yeah, it's fine. Okay, all right. So um, Hannah leaves for Suzuki. Um, production rule comes in. Now, when you got Rick Johnson as a rider, he had won an outdoor title. He almost beat your guy, Hanson, in 82. But he wasn't 
I mean, it was a good signing, but it wasn't uh, looked upon as, as, you know, anything that was going to turn out like it did. 86, you guys win the Supercross title. You win the outdoor title, or 250 outdoor title. Just about win the 500 title. But RJ really becomes RJ in 86 uh, with you tuning him. Did you have any idea RJ would be RJ? I mean, was this right from the start? Did you see, like, holy shit, this guy is off a of Yamaha and look at him? Um, I saw him during his Yamaha years. Right. I knew when he was a little kid, and, and he was a smart Alec. <laughs> yeah. And, and he would try and do pull things at the starting gate, and I would just call him on it. <laughs> so the day he walked in to talk about contracts, they brought him through the back of the old Honda race shop. Yep. And I happened to look down that way just for some reason. And he stood there and he flipped me off. Oh, he told the story. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes. So he flipped me off, and, right. I, and I go, "Ah, well, whatever. They're going to look at Johnson. That makes a lot of sense." Right. So what happened was, Bob called him and said, "If you're going to go to Honda, you need to have Brian work on your bikes." Okay. And you need to listen to what he's going to tell you. <laughs> right. And so, so I went out to a test session. Because he didn't know if you wanted to work with me, and I didn't know if I wanted to work with him. Oh, it was that kind of tense, huh? It was that. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, so we went to Hondaland, mm-hmm. and he was nursing an ankle problem with his boots. And I, I finally went, you need, and during that time, I go, you need to get some better boots. So he, uh, he rode the bike. Mm-hmm. That was the first time he rode the bike. Yep. He goes, oh, my God, we've been riding these production bikes. They're horrible. <laughs> right. Hey, these things are, like, unbelievable. No wonder we're getting our butt kicked. Right. And go, yeah, and we can do this, and we can do that. We can change this. We can change that. Yeah. Oh, we couldn't do any of that. Oh, yeah. yeah. We can make it if we didn't. We can't. We don't have it already. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Whatever you need, right. Yeah, yeah. You want this shift lever. You want this brake lever. You want this. You, want, you know, what do you want? Right. So he rode for a little while, and he had the ankle problem. He stopped, and so we, we sat and had a conversation in his little pickup truck for a long while. And then after that, um, you know, he goes, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll work with him. But it, a lot of that was because of Bob mm-hmm. telling him, hey, he's going to do the job for you. Yeah. So, I, you know, I was always grateful to Bob for that. Yeah. I, I had found out about that a long time after. You know, it was probably almost a year before Rick ever told me that story. Yeah, before, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and, you know, and both of those guys, I, I really, they were excellent. Mm-hmm. They, they, you know, their their history speaks for themselves. It's that time again. Thanks for listening to the Racer X podcast show brought to you by BTOsports.com, presented by Thor MX. I appreciate it. Don't forget to click on the Amazon banner on pulpamex.com to help out pulpamex.com. We appreciate it. Listen to these commercials. Buy from these sponsors. Thank you for listening. See you on the other side.
Racer X Podcast Show is brought to you by BTOSports.com. Whether you are looking for new gear, helmets, boots, or you need to rebuild your bike from the ground up, BTO is your source for all of your motocross needs. As a proud sponsor of the BTO Sports KTM race team and the heart of the BTO Sports amateur motocross team, it is obvious that we are about more than being just a store. We support the sport that supports us. us. We at BTO Sports want to give back to you, the listener, for supporting us and the Racer X Podcast Show. Use coupon code PULPMX when placing your order at btosports.com for a VIP listener discount. Certain brand restrictions will apply. Championship proven. Many motocross apparel brands make that claim, but only Thor can back it up. As America's first motocross apparel brand, Thor has set the standard for delivering the highest quality performance racewear on the market for the past 45 years. With champions like Ryan Villapoto, Blake Baggett, and Dean Wilson, to name a few, our products truly are championship proven. To see all the new 2013 products, visit ThorMX.com or head to your local Thor Parts Unlimited dealer. Thor, the official racewear of Supercross. But did you? But did you think RJ could win? Yes, you did. Okay, all right. Because yeah, I mean, I because remember, we stole okay. the outdoor national with Donnie Hansen away from him. Yeah, yeah, he broke his wheel. We, we, right. Yeah, well, we set him up for that one. Oh, we had one of our other riders. Just if you get in front of him, keep him busy. And what happened was Ricky <laughs> wasn't smart. Enough. Ricky was leading the points at right. that point in the moto. Yep. He jumps over the guy, lands way too far, blows the wheel out. Next thing we know, he's walking into the mechanics area, pushing his bike with the whole front hub blown up. Next yeah. moto, Donnie just covers it, stays where he needs to stay, right. you know, close to Ricky, and that was history. Yeah. But, no, I, I saw that in Ricky. I saw it for a long time because we had all talked about it at Honda. That was the next guy to get. Well, yeah, and he, he was like Bob. He was outspoken. He, he raced hard, you know, yeah. and... Uh, he he also uh, beat beat Lachine in '84. Lachine had the works bike and the next mm-hmm. great kid. And and R- Ricky basically, from what I gather, and even Ronnie admits this, Ricky wore him down. Just you know, better shape, yep. just in better shape, yeah. more determined, and everything. So, you know, no, Rick was a determined guy. He was also probably the most fun guy I ever worked with overall. Yeah, I mean, we had a lot of fun, and I mean, our families, and still to this day, I mean. uh my daughter worked for him through his off-road couple oh, okay. of off-road series he was doing. She worked for him, and oh, cool! You know, yeah. Uh, um, he uh, uh, so yeah. You guys never swept the whole season. It was very weird because so '86 you win the two, and then Bailey wins the 500s, and '87 uh, I think your bike seizes at Axton. Axton, mm-hmm. um, yeah, Axton. Yeah, yeah, your your bike seizes. Um, um, you see, Brian, I've done my research on this stuff. Um, yes, you did. Uh, so then you lose the – it's only six races, so you lose the outdoor title, but you win the 500s. And then uh-huh. uh, uh, 88, you uh, win the Supercross, but you lose – oh, no, 87, you lose the Supercross because you're um, – he broke his fingers in Pontiac or whatever. Like, anyways, lots of wins, tons of titles, so close to the full sweep of the year, but just uh, something stupid happened all the time. Well, what happened with the seas was we had problems in early part of the year. There was a spigot that came out of the back of the Honda cylinders. Yeah. Water spigot. Yep. And they glued them in at the factory. Mm-hmm. Well, we had some pop out, and we seized some motors mm-hmm. through the whole team. Yeah, everybody, yeah. So we go, hey, what's going on here? Factory goes, 
They use the wrong glue. It won't happen again. Yeah. Well, we had made a, a little kit that like had a little arm that was fab that that held it in place. Mm-hmm. So we did that, and then after that, the factory, no, no, you don't need to do that. That looks bad. Right. Well, that's what happened there. It blew the spigot out again with the glue, and it, that one really, really devastated Ricky yeah. that day at, at, at Axton. Yeah, because Wardy ended up winning, and we were kicking his butt left and right. Yeah, and 20, 25 points. See you later in six races. Yeah, yeah hard to make so, it up. Yeah, but, you know, we won a lot of stuff. We won a lot of oh, stuff in yeah. Europe and trophy and motocross races. I mean, through this time from way in the beginning with that small group of guys in early 80, 81, we all those years we yeah. owned trophy and motocross. Yeah. Yeah, six titles for you in three years with RJ. Yeah. Um and then also um as well the uh the at the time the beginning of what I'm probably gonna get into more here, how did you and Cliff get along? I know Bailey and, and RJ were enemies and then um you know how, how did that work at Honda? Were you guys was there tension or was it okay? I mean, Cliff and I had worked together and, and been around each other. He, yeah, there was always tension. There's competition. Right, right. Competition brings out different things with people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, there there was tense, and then, of course, the riders getting along, and then there was a little bit of that. But, I mean, overall, we all got together because we were working together. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, and uh, Jim Felt worked for O'Mara for a long time there. Right, right. And, and all of us are around. Um, you know, it... it uh, you know, here's yeah. a funny story about competition, yeah. and I'll go back a little bit. Sure. And it was when Bob Hanna was riding for Honda, mm-hmm. and we had a weekly meeting in the conference room, and Cliff and Jim Felt get up in the meeting, and they go, you got to slow Hanna down. Well, what? Well, what do you mean? Yeah. Well, he's devastating our riders, our riders. I go, you can't turn that off and on. Yeah. you got to take it until... You know, it is what it is, you know. And, uh, yeah, you know, there was probably at times that probably got tenser at different times, and people on teams and yeah. and things like that. But, yeah, we, overall, I mean, I had a lot. I talked to Cliff a couple times. We did some photo shoots a few years back, mm-hmm. and that at, uh, da- at uh, um, the retirement thing for Dave Arnold yeah. this spring. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, can you imagine you? Hey, Bob, uh, I was talking to other mechanics. They suggest you slow down, Bob. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How'd yeah. that go? <laughs> nah, I didn't go over at all. <laughs> he laughed like hell. Right. <laughs> he goes, "I'll fix those guys." Hey, eighty-six. Question for you. I always wanted to know this, and I think I forgot to ask RJ. Eighty-six. You're running upside downs, and Bailey runs the conventionals. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was the deal with that? And and how did? I, it's so weird because I, I worked for two factory teams, KTM and Yamaha, and I mean we couldn't do something that the other riders, you know, like you can't do that nowadays. You can't run one guy, one conventionals and one guy run upside down. It's, it's unheard of. Um, okay. Here's the, so, here's the story behind that. Yeah. So what happened was they came to us with the conventionals. They thought that it was be the next thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we tried it. We go, it's not completely right. A lot of it was they took just took the analogy of just turning the forks upside down. Well, what it took was the heat treat and the flex of all the tubes mm-hmm. and the sliders. It was different in the inverted upside down yeah. version. Yeah. So what it was, it was much stiffer. 
than what you had with conventional uh, forks. Right. Conventional forks, you know, you got the sliders and they can flop around a little bit. And mm-hmm. You have give and things like that. But what you had with the upside down forks was you had a lot of rigidity. Mm-hmm. But what would happen is if it was too, there was a lot of like sharp edge bumps and it was really hard surface, mm-hmm. you would get that transmission through the handlebars. So what would happen is <laughs> that year, it's quite funny, is Ricky would ride in practice and go, no, we're going to develop these. That's what happened. Oh, and okay. J- Japan says, yeah, you guys need to try them. Nobody else will try them. Right. So we go, okay, we'll try these and develop these. And uh, so we worked with them, and there was many a time where Ricky came in after practice and they go, how's the bike? Bike's good. How's the fork? Forks are good. 20 minutes before we go to need to go to line. Hey, I was thinking about it. Put the conventionals back on. No way. Oh, Jesus. Oh, yeah, that happened a lot. Uh, I would have been like, screw and you, so, Ricky. <laughs> so, you know, it took all these different things. Right. You know, it took, you know, the clamps were different, yeah, the handlebar yeah, mounts. Sure, right, you know, right, everything. Yeah, all yeah. those things. And then, you know, that that's what happened, and that's how we actually worked to develop that. Mm-hmm. And the the other thing that went on is I spent a lot of time with Ricky. I went and lived at his house okay. in the beginning, yep. uh, just like I did with Bradshaw. Mm-hmm. And uh, we would go and ride his 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 and Brock Glover Supercross track and his outdoor tracks mm-hmm. wherever in in the El Cajon area. Yeah. So we would test a lot of things when some of the other teammates weren't testing we would take a whole box of stuff and go down there and test this stuff. Mm-hmm. And people would go, well, you're not telling us. I go, no, here it is. Here's all the report. We tested this clamp. We tested this. This is the thing. Well, Rick would get mad that we were doing all the work, and right. they weren't. And whatever they learned, they didn't, you know, he felt they didn't give it back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it got to be you're in your box fan, yeah. you're in your box fan, you're in your box fan, right? Yeah. So that's that also adds to a little bit of the animosity within the team, right? Yeah. Um, Plus, when you're winning, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Um, also, too, I don't probably no one's told you this, but you can definitely take credit around '86, '87. Uh, everyone I knew that had a number five in their number would cut the corner off. So, congratulations on that. <laughs> that, was, that was your that was your style, which Ron Heben also takes takes credit for the giant numbers, which is what he did for Mickey Diamond one year. Yeah. You can take credit for all me and all my buddies. Well, not me because I was never number five, but all of my buddies cutting the five the corner of the five off. So, <laughs> congratulations on that. <laughs> oh, gee, thanks. <laughs> um, how bad did it get with Wardy? Uh, did they get along? Did you get along with Wardy? Well, you know, it was basically one of two guys who was winning races for a number of years. Um, uh, was it? A pretty intense rivalry. Well, yeah, there was a rivalry. Plus, he rode for another team, right? right. You know that. That's just you know a lot of it. I'll go back to Bob Hanna's famous statement. Bob said, "You know, I like to kick their butt every week on the racetrack so bad mm-hmm. that when I walk through the pit area, they won't look at me. <laughs> They'll look down at the ground." And, and yeah. that's what you know. I, I kind of. Some of those analogies that I learned with Bob and I learned over the years, a lot of that I fed into Ricky at times. Right. And then, of yeah. course, Ricky's personality was he was strong, mm-hmm. and and he would run with it, and he'd go, I'm going to be better than Hannah, you know. And, yeah, yeah. and he was. You know, he, he did a lot of things, and, and, and you know, mm-hmm. you know, 
his career being ended by somebody in practice landing on him. Yeah. You know, you know, he could have went on for a few more years well, easily. Yeah, another what if of motocross, like the Hanson thing. RJ does not break his wrist. There's no way he loses in 89. He's dominant in 89. And he's probably dominant in 90. You never, Jeff Stanton probably never gets to be Jeff Stanton, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Another great motocross what if. Did you, did you think, so, okay, so RJ starts taking, actually, let me go back. Let me ask you this one other story I got. MXA said your bike failed weight one time and you put like a lead piece of lead square onto it to pass the the weight and Honda was controlling the AMA and they were very upset. Remember anything about this? It was like 86, mm-hmm. 87. Um, Atlanta. Okay. So Atlanta Supercross. Um, were you illegal and, and did that any of that happen? No. Nah. Okay. What what happened? What ha- well, let me back up a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> what happened was they were using a battery-powered scale, and we had bought the same scale because mm-hmm. there was a lot of uh, – yeah, not correct weights compared to the weights that were were the day before or yeah. earlier in the day. Yeah. So what happened was I contacted the scale company mm-hmm. and said, "Hey, they go, well, you're going to have a plus or minus factor when you're in cold weather at this temperature, and yeah. if you're using battery and you're not plugging it in." Yeah. So what they had was they were in this little hole in the old baseball Fulton County. Yeah. Yep. And. um you know, it came off the track. What happened was it made weight, and uh, and what happened was we changed the pipe, mm-hmm. and it ended up being a lighter pipe, which we discovered later. Yeah. And the weight was really, really close, with, with a few tenths. Yeah, yeah. Okay? It was bouncing. Literally, you could look at the scale, and it was bouncing back and forth. Right. That's what happened. There. Okay. And, and I want to say that week between the – the Atlanta race to the Gainesville First National, mm-hmm. yeah, it was miserable because I like because the AMA hadn't gotten back to me. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, you were like, yeah, oh, and man. they finally ruled there. Hey, you know, yeah, there's a plus or minus in these scales, so yeah, right. And and I brought that up and I said, here, here's the phone number of the guy you want to talk to him. Well, Roy Jansen was in charge at that time, mm-hmm. and he, you know, I don't want to see it ever again. This and that, <laughs> and I go, hey, but I was up against Rick was a big boy. And he was giving up muscle and yeah. mass yeah. to Bailey, Wardy, all that. Yeah. So we had to make that bike close. Mm-hmm. Um, so now smash cut to Stanton. Rick befriends Jeff. And, you know, Jeff's a, a good rider, uh, but not – he gets signed by Honda in 89. as sort of like Dave Arnold said, you know, he's a good B rider. He'll get good results. Uh, um, and then he just starts catching fire a lot of it learned from Rick. Um, did you ever say, hey, Rick, maybe, maybe you shouldn't take that guy under your wing? Here's what happened. Mm-hmm. Rick allowed Jeff to move into his house. Right. And so what was happening is there was a few of us, including Rick's parents, saying, hey, he's just doing everything you're doing. <laughs> right. He's looking at the, watching the best. Right. right. So Rick would, like, change it up, right? And then all of a sudden, Jeff would be going out for a run, and Rick was going to go ride his bicycle. All of a sudden, Jeff changed his clothes and was riding a bicycle, right? Yeah. Also, at the same time, Danny Bentley attached to my rear bumper of my truck, mm-hmm. and he was mar- mirroring everything that was going on, what I did. Well, that was fine. We were teammates and everything. But so 
finally the light goes on in Rick's head when he keeps getting beat, or he's right there, and they yeah. go, "Hey, yeah. you taught him too much." Yeah, yeah. And he'll probably admit to it that to this day, I mean, he's telling it to me that was a huge mistake. Yeah, I know he said it on a, on one of these. So yeah. Um, yeah. Now Dave Arnold told me, and, and I don't know if Rick mentioned it, but so he breaks his wrist. At Danny Storbeck lands on him at Gainesville. No one has any idea it's that serious. Like it's like ah, he broke his wrist. You know, he'll be out a month. Uh, he'll be back. Is that what you guys all kind of thought? No. No. Because he was uh, never I had the to same stay guy. at the racetrack. A friend of ours took Rick. He went to the ambulance with him. And he, we were in Gainesville, was the University of Florida. Mm-hmm. So they went to the hospital there, and um, there was some hand surgeons there, and they looked at it and they go, mm, mm. "I don't know if he'll ever, you know, it might not be." But we've heard that before. Yeah, knees yeah. and wrists and arms and elbows. So um, you know he goes through the process and things like that. And turns out after the healing period, um, the next event is like Orlando mm-hmm. Supercross. And uh, Ricky comes to Florida. We're down there. I take him out to ride, and we're in Ocala, Florida at this track. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's riding, and it's not working. Right. It, it hurts. And there's this kid in a pickup truck next to us that's been riding, he goes, my uncle's a surgeon, a hand surgeon, very famous. Mm-hmm. We go, nah. Yeah. He goes, yeah. He goes, what do you got to lose? Turns out is he's a famous hand surgeon in right, Orlando. Right, right. And so we go see this guy, and we meet the guy in his garage, this doctor, and he's doing speed bag punching. Now, who okay. would think of a hand surgeon working, <laughs> right, right, being right. a boxer, right? Right. So we go to his office the next day, and I sit in the waiting room for a while while they just shoot all these photos of Rick's hands and wrists, and he comes out and gets me, and he goes, come in here. So this guy's got a book of all these things with newspaper articles where he's reattached arms right. and hands, and you know people are playing pianos and doing things. And this guy was straight up. He goes, man, I know what your business is. I can make it work for a while, but you, we're going to have to do some things. I'm going to have to go in there, and you're going to have to sit out a while longer. Yeah. He goes, but it's not forever. You know, your days are numbered. Really, huh? Yeah, yeah. 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 Your days are numbered. You know, hopefully we can get you through for a while. I, I was in on all that all along. And uh, so, okay, he, you know, they do the surgery actually the next day. Yep. He does all that, and on we go, and things like that. Well... As uh, we're getting closer and closer to the end of 89, Rick had problems with it. You know, there's not just turning the throttle, yeah. but there's also turning the handlebars, which people don't ter- think about. Don't think about, yeah. Your wrist turns a different way, it, you know, side to side, left yeah. to right. And uh, that's what w- wouldn't work, you know, and he'd be whiskey throttling the thing with his, you know, trying to not mm-hmm. overuse the wrist. So... He came to me and said, I don't know if I'm going to be riding next year. This is, 80, this is 89 or 90? Yes, in 89. 89. Oh, wow. See, it's weird because he won the, G, he won the USGP that year. So you, as a yeah. fan, you were like, he's back. RJ's back. You know? Yeah, but you've got to remember the USGP was summertime. Yeah. Around in there, right? right this right. is more towards the fall. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, so after that, yeah. he goes. Yeah. He said, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, and then... You know, 
so the- I wasn't happy with some situations that were going on within the Honda team, mm-hmm. um, things like that. And uh, so, oh, so you left in you left in '89 at the end. Yeah, at the end. Oh, I thought you- I went okay. to work for for uh, Bradshaw. Oh, I thought you left in. I have my notes. Uh, my going off my memory, I thought you left in '91. So, so yeah. Um, one of the things that RJ said in his podcast with me was he was kind of bummed that, you know, he hurt his wrist and, and you, among others, and there's other people too, that you guys jump ship, you know. Uh, but you remember it as Rick saying, hey, I don't, I don't know if I can ever race again. No, that's what he said. Yeah. I mean, my wife will tell you that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny how that <laughs> no, works, no, right? No, no, right. no. And luckily it said before we started this podcast, sometimes riders have a different view of things. <laughs> they do, they do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, you know, and what happened there was, his manager, Dave Stevenson, mm-hmm. who I knew through, through Rick, um, he was also dealing with uh, Bradshaw. Right. And Yamaha was looking for somebody to try and get Bradshaw straightened out. Yeah. So that was where the call came to me again. Because at that time I was known as the guy that straightens out and gets right. the riders to work. But you you know, it, it was hard work. You just... Worked with the guy. You, yep. you, you went out and you practiced with him. Mm-hmm. You became his friend, you know, his a mentor and all those things. And that's what you did, you know. You, and, you had one failure with Mike Craig. But other than that, everybody else worked out pretty good, Brian. <laughs> Craig? Ooh, that is a, the dark day in my life. Oh, Mike Craig. You, not, even, not even Brian Lunas could straighten out Mike Craig. That says something. Um, oh, no, no. That was uh, – that was bad. You that uh, was bad. Now, now some of this stuff I've talked to. Uh, you know, Dan Bentley. I've seen him at the races, and uh, uh, I talk to him every now and then. Uh, Dave Arnold done two of these podcasts with him, and it got worse after you left. Bale got benched and and everything else. But in '89 at Honda, you got Roger and JMB. He loves JMB, although he's not there full time. Cliff, Dan, and Jeff Stanton. You and RJ. It was pretty gnarly, huh? A lot of a uh, lot of. Egos, a lot of people upset, a lot of riders not liking each other. It wasn't a very, and even Dan Bentley admits this, it was not a very great situation. Um, and again, Roger was kind of wrapped up in the middle of it. So, Yeah, uh, no, what, what Dan told you is true. Yeah, Ro- Roger was showing, you know, favorism. And, uh, you know, and, and it, it, it wasn't good. It yeah. was all about bail. And that's all we saw was the Europeans. It was all about Europeans, right? Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, there was a lot of things said about Bale at times, and I'll admit I was part of it. Yeah, yeah, you got, I mean, it seemed like a real it, toxic it, environment with everybody. Yeah, it yeah. was a toxic environment. And uh, actually, when I left Honda, big shots at Honda, I, I went to Japan for Supercross races in Japan, mm-hmm. and the big people from HRC were standing out past the banners, and they were like, come here, come here. Yeah. And I go, what? Why did you leave? I was there for 13 years in the yeah. racing department. Right. And uh, they go, uh, why did you leave? I told you people there was a problem there. Yeah. And you guys didn't want to listen to it. Yeah. And so that, you know, even the day I announced that one, of, it might have been Unadillo, New York, I announced that I was leaving. Oh, okay. So you and were yeah early. You were out early. You knew. Yeah, yeah, and I said, uh, you know, Dave came to my room, and he said, why are you leaving? I go, Dave, I told you this all along. You guys aren't reacting to these situations. Mm-hmm. It, this is a bad deal for everybody. 
this is going on over here, and this is going on over here. And I go, they, they, this is a great deal. I can, you know, Rick's got, we don't, none of us know. Right. You included. And they were trying, and behind the scenes, Hanna was trying to get out of the rest of the years of Rick's contract. Right. You know, that, that's a lot of stuff that didn't come out, you know. They can go, oh, yeah, Brian left him. Yeah, but Honda's over here going, yeah, we're going to try and see if we can get him out of his contract. Yeah. And things like that. So, I mean, that stuff all goes on. And, uh, you know. Um, I imagine you got a good raise to go to Yamaha because, again, you know, Bradshaw was the next one. And you were looked upon as a guy that could, could win races and win titles and probably got a nice little raise. It was good. Yeah. I mean, you know, Bradshaw took care of me. Also, he, you know, he had heard the stories, and yep. I said, hey, you know, this is the agreement I have with my other riders. Yeah. You know, I'll give you the effort. If you don't feel it's right when it comes time to pay, then we're fine, you know. And, and so I went from there, and then, you know, I actually, uh, you know, went over there and started working and yeah. realized that, wow, <laughs> I got a lot of work behind me. Yeah, yeah. These, Yamaha's aren't Hondas. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Uh, in 1990, Bradshaw comes out, wins the first two or three, then has that crash at San Diego. And I mean, in your time at Yamaha, you never won a title with Damon, but I, I'm sure he won the most amount of races. Like a la Bob Hanna, he won the most amount of races in those three years. Um, Stanton won a lot. Bale swept it in 91, of course. Um, and then the 1992 LA Supercross, um, what Ooh. happened? What happened? Okay. So I've taken a lot of heat over the years about you have. Toolbox. You my have. toolbox, by the way, that I own, <laughs> um, even around here in Mechanics Square. Um, so what happened was Damon came out just before the race, the week before, mm-hmm. just leading up to the Coliseum. That was also when we had the riots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the race right. was pushed back. So Damon had a uh, maybe 14 points. I don't remember exactly mm-hmm. how many points we had. And uh, he shows up at the shop with his whole family from North Carolina. And they're running around. He's got his grandparents who had never traveled in their, his life on an airplane. Mm-hmm. They're f- running around in a limo, whatever. Mm-hmm. So it gets closer to the time at the race, and they're, you hear more about they're worried about where they're going to have the victory celebration. Well, we haven't won this thing yet. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it goes on. So the morning of the event, we get to the track, and they had rented a little, like, trailer so Damon could hang out in this little right. camper trailer. Yeah. Damon comes. He comes in the box van, and I start talking to him, and I'm going, uh oh, there's <laughs> nobody home here. Yeah, he's got this thousand yard stare, and he's not interacting. You know, no. he's, he, how he repeats things or how he says things is—it's not normal. Yeah, I mean, you know this normal. guy by now. This is the third year yeah. working with him. Yeah, yeah. You're... and I've lived with him for a long time, and uh, so he goes in a trailer and Keith McCarty and. Um, Oh, the other manager at that time that was there. Um, I said, hey, have you guys talked to Damon today? Mm-hmm. No. You need to go in there and start talking to him. I go, we're in trouble right this minute. And they looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> they went in the trailer, yeah. came back out, looked at me and went, 
Oh, man. Oh, really, huh? Yeah. They go, whoa. Just, he'd hurt his knee, right, too. Another thing that, that, that yeah, that, that was minor. Yeah. That was really minor. Right, right. So I went back into the trailer a little bit and kept trying to talk to him that, and I'm going, we're in trouble. Wow. We're in deep trouble. Just, Hopefully we can pull this off. Like just pressure? Just, just. I mean, yeah, and the whole thing about where they were going to do the party after the race. Right. and Yeah. They were already won the event. Yeah, they had it wrapped up already. Yeah, and all that going on, and it was not good. Mm-hmm. It wasn't good. And and so they went out on the track, and he couldn't get out of his own way. No, you, you know, you watch, you watch races that year, and, and yeah, he, he can pass these dudes with no problem. Coliseum, mm-hmm. Coliseum comes, and he can't get by Cooper or Kurdowski to save his life, and you're like, no, oh, what is they all helped us. Yeah, yeah. They all hung out behind it. He wasn't yep. standing to win. Right. Right. That's how bad they, the nasty is it get. Yeah, yeah. And, and he, he hung behind it for, I want to say, five, six laps, and oh. finally it was so slow. <laughs> yes. Damon goes so slow that they had to go around him, right? Well, in the main event, of course, Stanton gets the start of his life, which he never gets. And, uh, of course, you know, he goes on to win, and, you all know, right. that's all history. Well, you have to remember, I was still – driving around and box fans and, and doing all these things and yeah. living with the guy and spending all my life making him a champion. Mm-hmm. And here was his chance, and he wasn't giving us, the team, full 100%. So, for whatever reason yeah, it may be. Yeah. And that when I came into the trailer, in the back of the, uh, the box fan, I go, and I went, Damon, what the hell was going on out there? And he got, looked at me with a thousand yard stare, and I opened the back of my toolbox and threw the, my tool belt in there and slammed it shut and walked away. So you were not throwing tools around? No. You were not? No, no it, was, it was my tool bag that I had on my waist. Yes, of course. That I threw right. on the top of the. No, no, no. That wasn't the thing. And so the funny part of, of a month or so later, we were at the trophy donations in Holland uh-huh. and I see Garrett Wolfsink, who I worked with at Suzuki. Yeah. And he goes, pulls me aside. And he goes, I would have thrown Bradshaw out of the back of the box. <laughs> thing <instead> of your <laughs> yeah, I can't believe you just so, broke up this myth of you throwing tools around. Oh yeah. That's how uh, it's always said. Right, you know, right. It's funny. And then of course there's, I think there's some old YouTube thing of it, but that's what I did. I threw my tools in the yeah. toolbox and closed the lid. That, no, not at all. That, you know, that's how the motorcycle people are. It, it, they like to embellish mm-hmm. at times. That walk yeah. back after the main event must have just been the longest one ever. You're just like, what? We won nine races, clearly the fastest guy. There is no doubt. And, mm-hmm. and, and you just fold. He just, and now let me, throw you, let me throw you out a conspiracy theory. Let me, tell you, okay. let me see if you ever heard this one. And I heard it from people at Yamaha when I was also there. Damon's contract was up for uh, renewal if he won the Supercross title. No. Uh, no, wait, wait, wait. Wait, I have that backwards. Damon's contract, if he won the Supercross title, it was, he was re-up for three years automatically. If he did not win it, he had, he, his contract was up for renewal. So, and it was for a lower price. So basically, if he won the title... He got another three years put onto his contract. If he did not win the title, he had to sign a new deal, and that he folded. He threw it in to get a new, get, to get more money. No. Okay. Now here's the funny part: when he retired, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because we did a race for Sapporo in Italy, 
And uh, we were in Italy. Dave Stevenson was there mm-hmm. and a number of other top riders. And uh, Damon and I were sharing a room at the hotel. And Damon, I come in the room, and Damon goes, I've decided I want to retire. <laughs> well, at that time, he still had a few years left on his contract, and that contract was like $465,000 yeah. at Yamaha. Yeah, big money, right. Yeah, and then his, his uh, Axle contract was worth 100 and some thousand. His Bell Helmet contract was worth twenty five grand. Mm-hmm. There was all these other contracts. That, now, it had nothing to do with that. Okay. He, right. Yeah, no, no, no. He was making the most money of anybody at that time. Yeah. Uh, so in 93, no, 90, yeah, 93 he comes out. McGrath wins. He's a shell of himself. Uh, mm-hmm. Hangs it up. Did you work for him that year in 93? Or yes. were you done? Okay, so. I was there for three. Oh, yeah, I was there for three seasons with him. Okay. Um, yeah. What? What stopped Damon from being one of the all-time greats? I mean, obviously you went through the L.A. Coliseum thing, and it seems like pressure and the, the, the outside forces got to him. But, I mean, there should have been a lot. Even 89 when you weren't there, he should have won that 125 title outdoors. Um, um, here's what happened with Damon. What happened, yeah, in your opinion? Here's what happened to Damon Bradshaw as a history. Mm-hmm. From a very young age, he was on a Yamaha support program. Mm-hmm. He was the next deal, okay? Always, right, yeah. Right, and all his friends told him he was better, he was the next Bob Hanna. Mm-hmm. But he had not lived up to that, okay? And that was Damon's problem when I went there was everybody told him how great he was, mm-hmm. and he, he believed all that. Instead of, like, you got to work at it, you got to go run. I, I mean, when I... Went to work for him. Went to work with him at his house. I could outrun him around the block. <laughs> I could outride him on his bicycle. Right, you know, right. and after that, that made him angry. He yeah. picked up the pace and did all these things. Right. But you have to train. It's not, and that's what was going on. He was just coming to the racetrack and living off of talent. Okay. Yeah. Well, you get to a certain level. All these other guys are eager and they're working at it. Mm-hmm. That's true to this day, by the way, too. You see, yes. you see the same thing to this day. Right, exactly. So what happened was everyone told him he was the greatest thing that ever happened, but he had never lived up to that. Mm-hmm. You were the next Bob Hanna. And that's what people were telling him. Right. He was the next Bob Hanna. And, and that's what. And you were like, you know, hey, I know Bob Hanna. This is what he did on Wednesday afternoons and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, you know, Damon was a good guy. I mean, he really is. He was a great guy. And he had an awful lot of talent, mm-hmm. but all he had to do was apply himself. And, and you know, mm-hmm. he was on that path. He was training and doing all the right things up until that point. Yeah, he, he, he caved with the pressure. Right. He choked. Yeah, yeah, you know, That's the easiest way to explain it. He choked on that whole Coliseum thing. Yeah. But you know, part of that also was he had a girlfriend. That there was things behind the scenes. That there was family issues and yeah. the family didn't like. It. I just went. You know, I'm yeah. not even going to get into that. Right. Well, that's that's an old age old motocross story, and it goes on yeah. today. Right. Exactly. Yeah. The, no, the, that's an ugly story uh, that goes on and on, and you know, yeah. Parents and, and money and chicks and yeah, you name it. Yeah. 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 We, we see it. We see it today. Um, yeah. Uh, so going to Cali, what? Uh, how'd that come about? Um, well, 
I got the Craig's thing, like you said. Oh, yeah, that's right. So, Michael Craig. Uh, we won't go there because that's a whole nightmare that people think I was making up things. People, you, again, just following the sport in the magazines, Brian Lunas was hired to, Mike Craig, very talented, there's no doubt, and Brian Lunas was hired to keep Mike Craig uh, focused and training and on the straight and narrow, and he did win a Supercross. Yep. Congratulations on that because, yeah, that – Mike never really won much of anything, but he did win. He won Tampa Supercross with you, but he before the yeah he was done early on. Did you realize you had your hands full with Mike Craig early on? Yes. The problem <laughs> was uh, Mike wouldn't show up for tests. <laughs> Mike would he, he couldn't rent a car, uh-huh. so I would used to have to go and pick him up at the airport. Well, he wouldn't be there. <sighs> he wouldn't call us. You wouldn't do all those things. You finally got a factory ride, Mike Craig, and you just blew it. Yeah, I and mean. then you know, then there was other things that were going on that I won't air yeah. the dirty laundry here. Right. But uh, there was a number of things that were that went on there, you know. And uh, but yeah, he wasn't following through with anything, and yeah. and so uh, what happened was again, Dave Stevenson, mm-hmm. who also worked with Mike Kurdowski. Mm-hmm. Dave said, Brian's not very happy with that situation. Mm-hmm. He goes, I feel bad because I dragged him into the Yamaha situation. Right. Well, I worked with Mike when Mike won the 125 championship at Honda. He was a young little kid. Yeah, 89, and, right, yeah. Yeah, and I, I hey, you know, you got to do this, you got to work at this, and kind of worked with him and his mechanic. And, and so we were always friends. And so I get a call from Mike. Yeah. Hey, what about coming to Cowie? Now, I swore to myself I'd never go to Cowie. <laughs> Why, Roy Turner? Well, there was like some Roy situations or? there. There was management and okay. just just things yeah, yeah. in general. Yeah, you're just like I'm not going there. I'm not going ever doing that. I'm going to go do something else. And he goes, "No, I'll make it worth your while." And so Mike came to agreement with me. Yeah, and he said, "You know, I will pay you this much." And he always the check was always there. And uh, you know, I signed my deal with Cowie and. Mm-hmm. You know, ended up being the crew chief over there and, and, and working with Mike. And, uh, you know, Mike was a hard-working guy. Yeah. It just his talent wasn't in the same bracket as Bradshaw and, and Ricky, but he worked hard like Stanton. Yeah. And, I mean, I would go to his house once a week, work on his practice bikes, do pit board, everything, yeah. every week. And, and, you know. Putting the work in, uh, it, if nothing else, right, yeah. Yeah, he put the work in it, and he won – one, I think, and he may have won a one national and some things. And yeah. then he goes, you know, uh, he was kind of done before I went over there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I said, okay. You would have won Daytona so, with him, too, I think. I think he won Daytona yeah. like three years in a row or something, right? Yeah, something like that. And, and you know, he was great guy. Great guy, you know. And uh, Now, he, he told the story on this podcast again. Like I told you, <laughs> he said that he was, I mean, he had finished fifth overall if you combine everything. So he was still very good rider, but yes, he probably was a little not going to win anymore, you know? Um, and he had said that you told him you should just retire. So he did. No. Okay. No, I didn't. Mike came to me. All right. Mike came to me and said, Hey, I'm going to do this. And I go, well, I'd already heard that story out of a couple other guys. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I go, well, you know, this guy, this guy did it. So you're really done here. But Mike had made good money, and yeah. Mike held on to his money. Mm-hmm. He did a really good job, and, you know, he had a nice house and cars, and yeah. he was another Ferrari owner. 
and he was great. And, you know, he said, hey, I don't want to do this. But backing up very so slightly, Mike had a really bad crash at his supercross track. Mm-hmm. Some dirt had gotten into the pilot jet on his practice bike. And we had fuel filters on the Cowies. But mm-hmm. somehow he went into the set of whoops and just it bogged and he cartwheeled. Oh, yeah. And after that, he was gun shy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he came to me and said, that's that. And I go, Mike, that's your decision. I can't make that decision for you. I'll be here. I'd rather work with you than some other kid. Yeah. I go, but I really like you, and we get along well and everything else. I loved his parents, Mm -hmm. and uh, they were really, you know, just great people. And, uh, you know. Yeah, just definitely not the way that Mike told the story, (laughs) Brian. Yeah, that's all right, you know. (laughs) I I, I take a fair amount of abuse, but my skin's pretty thick. Apparently you have a lot of... I've been involved in all types of racing, and, you know, I've seen that, but... Hey, apparently um, you are you're a very powerful person in the industry also because there's a lot of decisions that you help these riders make. <laughs> yeah, I know that. I, I, I've heard those stories, and that, that's one of the reasons why I got in contact with you. I go, hey, I hear all these questions. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring that up. Yeah, right? yeah. And, uh, the funny thing, I never hear that out of any of my car drivers, though. Right, that, that, that's right, the right. funny thing. Um, I hear it about the motorcycle guys, but I never heard it out of any of the drivers I worked with in, uh, in auto racing. Yeah. So, uh, um. And so after Kudrowski, was it Huffy? Damon Huffman from there? Yeah. yeah. Huffman, they hired Huffman from Suzuki. He yeah. was the, I don't know, was he the 125 champion? Two-time, I think yeah, he was. Two, two-time 125 Supercross champion. And yeah. That, and this is where yeah. uh, I'm, I'm working as a mechanic by now at this point and, uh, when you took over for Huffman. And uh, some success, uh, although, like Damon said on a podcast, uh, uh, to me, once he broke his leg, he was never really the same, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, um, real scared after that, real, real kind of timid. So – Kid was fast yeah. for sure, and uh, you know, we we won one or two. He actually battled with McGrath at yeah. that time. Nobody was battling with McGrath. No, Seattle, yeah, Seattle. Put yeah, it. he was. You know, he was doing really well, and uh, you know, I, I he was a good guy to work with. He was another guy that I traveled to his house up there in Acton and mm-hmm. during the week, and out to different racetracks and work with him during the middle of the week, and you know, good guy. Yeah, you know, but. Uh, he didn't put much into the um, training. Yeah, he he again on a podcast with with me. You know, he definitely sounded like he things weren't rosy between you two always. You know, and and maybe like you said, you're probably saying, "Hey, dude, I've worked for all these guys. This is what you need to do." Like you're not doing it. Um, mm-hmm. Like a lot yeah. of riders, right? You're like, oh, "Okay, Bradshaw, uh, Hannah Bradshaw Johnson, maybe not so Bradshaw, but Hannah and Johnson. This is what they did." And Damon had talent. There's no doubt. Yeah. Um, uh, so after that, after Cowie, what was that? The mechanics were thing. Was that starting? That was Axo mechanics were. Um, or did you? Yeah, do it was. Between? But what happened was, I, uh, you know, the Cowie management had changed mm-hmm. in the middle of all that. Roy Turner left. Yep. He went to work for Rock Shocks, mm-hmm. and I was the crew chief, and I was left working on Damon's bike. Plus, trying to keep everything else together. Keep Big Mike from uh, fighting everybody? No, he was gone. Oh, okay. All I right. think he was gone by that time. <laughs> yeah. The dads, him and uh, Renard were gone. Yep. Um, so, you know, it was like I was trying to keep things afloat and mm-hmm. trying to work on the bike. And, you know, there was some uh, people behind the scenes that said, oh, this would be better if you do this. Well, after I left, Damon didn't do anything. Yeah. 
after that, you know, and uh, um, there was a sense. Not to, there, sorry, I interrupt you. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. There was a sense I got, and again, I was a mechanic around then. Emig hired his buddy Jeremy Albrecht, J Bone. Yes, they won, yes. and it, it, and and McGrath was bros and buddies with Skip, you know, from back in the day. There was a sense among teams that let's not hire mechanics. Let's hire and I'm, I'm and these guys are friends of mine, uh, J Bone and, and these guys. Mm-hmm. But there was a sense of let's not hire mechanics. Let's hire buddies. I actually hired J Bone. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I worked with. I was around Jeff at Yamaha. Mm-hmm. When he, he rode the 125 there. Right, right. So I knew Jeff the whole time. In fact, I did a bunch of races with Jeff at Yamaha in Europe with him. Oh, okay. Uh, when, uh, at different times. And, uh, you know, those two got along well, and it was great. Yeah. And that was all going on. And then, you know, Huffman, when he got tore his ACL like that, you know, he never really recouped from that. And he never put anything together. And, so basically, I I had a lot of friends in the auto racing industry yep. that I had known from when in the beginning when I started the glove thing in 1990 that were always after me to come work in the auto racing. Mm-hmm. They go, dude, you got to come and work in on racing. Yeah, I go, eh, I, I I'm a I'm a I have a good position here and yeah. I'm paid well. I don't want to do that, you know. And so I left the motorcycle business, and uh, kind of looked for some things in the industry. And nothing really was panning out. And I mm-hmm. went, you know, I've been to all four of them. Yeah, uh, yeah you it's know. true. You had been at that point. Right, right. Yeah, yeah do I really want to do that? And, then, you know, I had some people talk to me about managing, and I'm going, I'm going to have to watch young kids and hold their hands again. Yeah. And basically what happened was I had enough of holding young kids' hands and making them millionaires. <laughs> right, okay? right, right. And, and, and they can say what they want about me. Yeah, you, you deserted me, you did this, you did that. But all of them have a really good retirement program yeah. from the results and the work we did together. Yeah, good point. You're right, yeah. And, and I was paid very well for it, not being arrogant, whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You're, I, not, you're not claiming. I, I was you, paid for it, and I gave them 100%. I spent time from away from my family and, and lived and bred everything, bred everything that needed to be done for those guys mm-hmm. and, and made them. And, and a lot of times it's like, you said that about me? <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it, it's, you know, yeah. okay. You know what? I just laugh. You know, yeah. my wife and my daughter, we just laugh. Right. Because this is like, come on. You know, and, and it's like, okay, fine. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's just that way. But you know, I, I got a lot of I got a lot of respect and time. And you know, Tony Berluti's a good friend of mine here in Vegas. I live in Vegas now, and I got a lot of respect and time for guys like you that drove the circuit uh, for so many years in vans. And and you know, I like it, riders would stay back. You'd practice all week on your race bike, busted out for the race. Lots of respect and for you guys, the, the Mike Goose Gosler and those guys that are still doing mm-hmm. it and did oh, it. Yeah. Uh, that is a gnarly job. And the travel schedule, too. The AMA did not care. You guys no. were driving everywhere. And uh, insane. Insane uh, job. But at the same time, uh, probably something you wouldn't trade for the world. But crazy, crazy life. Oh, yeah. You did that. And so, you know, I, I went from there. And then what happened was, uh, I'll be quite honest, no one 
from the motorcycle industry called me. How are you doing? Yeah. All that. Yeah. And I had spent 27 years in the right. motorcycle racing business. Yeah. Not a soul. Hmm. And so, you know, I, I, I actually, uh, I went down into Charlotte mm-hmm. and because some people said, hey, come and interview with us. So I interviewed. And while I was down there interviewing with a bunch of different teams, um, I got a call from Dan Gurney. Oh, yeah. Not himself, yeah. but yeah. his team manager said, where are you at? I go, I'm down here doing this. He goes, don't sign any contracts. <laughs> Please come back and talk to us. Mm-hmm. So I do all that, and I, still, I come back, and I... I go into dance and they show me, oh my God, they got all this stuff. They're IndyCar racing and yeah. Toyota's foot in the bill and they've got seven post shaker rigs and they got this and they got that. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh my God, this is Works Bikes Plus. Yeah. <laughs> and so, I, you know, I go back and I talk to my wife and I go, well, it's in Santa Ana. I don't have to move to Charlotte. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's still close and do that. And so I, I signed on with them. And uh, it was a great experience. Yeah, you liked it? I mean, you enjoyed it? Yeah, they, they, you know, you can adjust everything on those cars in those days. Right. Everything. Right. And it was like I was really lucky because the Dan built his own car, the Eagle. It wasn't the best. Mm-hmm. But there was a lot of people that had experience in Formula One that were like the technical director and the race engineer. Mm-hmm. And they were really good because I would ask questions. Right. I say, hey, why do why do you do this or why is that? And they would tell me, yeah. and they would explain it to me. And uh, you know, we had our own aero tunnel, we had a water tunnel, and it was like, oh man, this is so cool. And you got all these people, and everybody does their own job, and I don't have to rebuild the <laughs> frame, drive the truck, <laughs> rebuild the suspension. You know, all these things. Right. This is like, wow, this is cool. <laughs> and so. Uh, it was really neat that way, and, you know, I, yeah. I did that. And actually, you know, there were some people involved from motocross that were doing shocks and suspension work in, in IndyCar. Yeah, it's and, kind of, uh, yeah. That's why yeah. I heard you were doing suspension, right? That was really yeah. your, yeah, that was your, uh, your... Well, you had a background from the motorcycle thing. You right, just right. had to think, instead of a two-wheel plane, you were dealing with a four-wheel plane, and yeah. you know. And so, you know, I brought some things to the table, and... I learned an awful lot from those people, and it, and it was really neat. Uh, that only lasted a couple of years, and Dan's sponsorship money ran out, and Toyota had decided to go in another direction, mm-hmm. and they took all the money from Cal Wells' two IndyCar teams and Dan's and mm-hmm. Robbie Gordon's deal, and they all gave it to Chip Ganassi oh, yeah, yeah. next year. Yeah. And, uh so in the fall of that, when Dan said, please stay, I'm going to do a smaller team and all that, I got a call from one of the NASCAR teams, and it was Joe Gibbs' operation. Mm-hmm. And how it came about was there's a guy named Jim Anderson who was our show of suspension guy during the Rick era. Oh, geez, okay, yeah. And he was working at Orleans, And he said, hey, you need to talk to this guy. Mm-hmm. And so, actually, and Jim had helped me through the Dan Gurney thing. He vouched for me when they, they said, hey, do you have anybody? I go, yeah, here's Jim. And yeah. he goes, yeah, take him in. Right. And so, and I had actually worked with Oleans all the way back to the Graham Noyce days with Ken Oleans. Oh, yeah, I so, guess so, right. right yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. so um, I had that relationship with Oleans. And uh, 
So, uh, you know, I went down there and interviewed with them and came back, and it was a couple weeks, and finally they called me and said, how soon can you be here? Wow. Went, yeah. So I backed my pickup truck up. Yeah, drove out there. And drove out there and lived with Ricky Johnson and his wife ah. until I got a place. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Full circle yeah. here, right. Yeah. Yeah, so I lived there. And during that time is when Jimmy Johnson had moved down there to drive a bush car. Yeah. And Jimmy and his family were always at Rick's house. Yeah, knew each other from right, Al Cajon Day. Right. right yeah. And I knew Jimmy from when he was a little mini bike rider at Bonona Oaks, and he hung around because Ricky was friends with him, and yeah. they still are to this day. And yeah, Ricky was the hero, right, back then. So Yeah, it, it it's pretty cool when I see Jimmy at the NASCAR track. He, like, flags me, hey, how are you, man, and everything else. <laughs> That's cool, yeah. The, the guy is so grounded from everything he's done. He's just yeah. I, I've heard that about him. I know people who know him, like you said, RJ, and there's different motocross people that have dealings with him, and they all say the guy's never changed from his days of living in San Diego. You know, just a real nope. cool guy. He's just a super super guy. All right, to wrap really this is. thing up, let's let's. I'm going to get some some rapid fire questions from you here. Um, sure. Your worst DNF ever, and maybe we covered it with the cylinder spigot, but uh, your worst DNF ever, like crushing one or. Or one that maybe you made a mistake, like you just full on brain faded, and and you know we all have them as mechanics. So oh boy, uh, um, is there one that stands out? Well, I think that one stands out with yeah. the cylinder popping, but it, yeah. that one wasn't completely under my control. No, but for sure, I've yeah. had some. Yeah, yeah. you know, a, a quick rapid fire thing. The biggest thing I always had through my whole career in racing mm-hmm. is that uh, the fear of hurting someone. Yeah, the fear of failing, and. Uh, it was really noticeable in the cars because those guys go so fast, and I right. was always in the fear of uh, doing the wrong thing. Um, now, this one's going to be hard for you. You can think about it for a little bit. But the best race you've ever seen, I mean, you worked for Hannah, from one of your riders. Uh, you worked for Hannah, R.J. Bradshaw. I mean, you name it, Kudowski, Huffman. Was there a day that stands out where you were like, no one can beat this? I mean, I guess you had tons of those days, but – you know what I mean? Was there a come-from-behind ride or something that you were just like, wow, even you got goosebumps and even you were blown away by your rider? Ricky Johnson come from behind at the L.A. Coliseum. Oh, okay. Yeah, in 87? That's Cooper. Yeah, yeah, in 87, right. Yeah. No, that, that was a big one. Um, I've had some big ones in the auto racing thing. Okay. But, uh, you hard, know, hard. It's, uh, that, yeah. some of those, the Brickyard, winning the Brickyard in 2000, mm-hmm. that was Pretty big. Yeah, it would be pretty oh. cool. Yeah. Um, your best motocross donations? 86, Ooh. maybe? Italy? You guys killed them? Yeah. Uh, oh, Majora. Majora. Yeah. 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 I mean, we had a great day yeah. uh, on the with Rick, but <laughs> O'Mara passing uh, Thorpe. Yeah. <laughs> the 500s on the downhill. Yeah. Uh, that was – and the crowd was crazy. Was I it? mean, the yeah. Italians went nuts after <laughs> the race. You guys were heroes, just rock stars, huh? Yeah, yeah, no, that was pretty cool. Uh, the worst motocross nations you had. I mean, Bradshaw crashed his brains out at one of them. Um, yeah, Holland, was, I think he did that. Was there, a, was there a worst one that stands out? You know, it's it's hard to say. I mean, I had some really great ones there. Mm-hmm. Some of them were Magoo was riding for the yeah. team. Yeah, Magoo swept and, all uh, four motos that year, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it... Uh, Man, that that one's hard to say. It's really I, I, difficult. I went uh, I went one time as a mechanic, Brian, as, for Team USA, and we lost. So um, yeah, that was awesome. One time, and we lose. 
<laughs> well, you, they, you, you went know, every I, year I, and won. I, luckily, I went to Australia and I did a, you know, that race there with. Uh, oh, did you? Amic. Were you on the B yeah. team? Okay, you were on the. Yeah, the, I went there in Amic, yeah. and then, uh, you know, I, you know, some of the other races we went to, they, they were always great. Yeah, and they were always nail biters usually. Yeah, and so yeah, that's. Another thing, Art. like another thing about you guys, you old mechanics, and and Berluti and Bentley, Bentley have told me this. Like you guys would go to Europe for a month, mm-hmm. you know, be away from your families, and, and you know, because riders made tons of money back then in the off season. And another reason why you guys were gnarly, just traveling to Europe and for a month to hit all these races, and yeah, crazy. And try and keep the rider happy. <laughs> right, right, right. Oh yeah, I mean, we were making a lot of money cash. Right, and right. you know they're. They're whining because they're not being able to go to the Seven Eleven or whatever, you know. And <laughs> yeah, that, that probably the biggest problem you ran into was trying to keep them You're, running the straight and narrow. You know, it, it was a difficult thing, but it never worked. Yeah. Out. yeah, whoever was Lachine's guy never it never worked out. He couldn't keep it on the straight and narrow <laughs> when Lachine oh. went to Europe. But <laughs> yeah, well, I, I I had been around. That I was at Honda at that time, yeah. Right, right, it was an yeah. uh, interesting time. But, you know, I've had conversations with Ron Lachine at the uh, Marty Motes m- movie mm-hmm. uh, premiere oh, in yeah? San Diego. Yeah. And he goes, man, I was messed up. And he was like, he, he just kind of rattled it all off. And I was like, wow. Yeah, I'm good friends with him to this day. He's, to this day, I talk to him a lot. Uh, he's told me some incredible stories. And, and some of them involve uh, doing really gnarly things and then winning a race. Hours later. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, no. No, no. They're, they're things you don't want the public to know. <laughs> right, right. And then, and then he shows up straight, coming straight from wherever to the track and wins. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, okay, so the strength and weakness of Bob Hanna. What's one strength, his biggest strength and his biggest weakness? What was his biggest weakness? Uh, Bob's biggest weakness was his ankles. <laughs> his ankles, yeah. Yeah, his ankles. Um, I mean, it was really hard to find any weakness about Bob because yeah. Bob had come, you know, Bob, uh, he welded exhaust pipes mm-hmm. for Bassani and, okay. and did all those things, and he came from from nothing. Yeah. You know, yeah. his whole thing was about failing and having to go back to do that. To welding and pipes, it, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, and Ricky had a thing that I used to use against him. His father was a house painter. Okay. And when Rick would start whining, I go, "You want to go work for your dad, sanding cabinets?" <laughs> no, nope. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, okay. that—that's the big thing. Yeah. Uh, Rick Johnson's biggest strength and his biggest weakness. Uh, Rick was his biggest strength was he was extremely strong and mm-hmm. motivated. Yeah, yeah, he he was really strong and motivated and had a really good. Uh, hand-eye coordination and skill, mm-hmm. and uh, things were fun for him, what he did mm-hmm. and everything. I mean, the other probably, you know, the biggest thing that happened to him was just getting landed on. Yeah. I mean, the, the guys had such a great strength uh, in, uh, you know, everything he did. And, uh, and I've been really lucky to work with, I mean, I'm really, really lucky, all the great people that I got to work with. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's it just like, you know, I, I got to work with everybody that was a, a real, yeah. you know, player. I, I more look at, I, I'm also very uh, jealous and envious of your work spike experience because, boy, that would have been something cool. 
Um, oh, the work spikes thing was cool. Um, your biggest regret, uh, you know, we all have them. Um, should you have, was there something you should have done or something looking back? Was there a situation you wish you would have handled differently? Uh, anything like that? Well, if you listen to the public was when I threw my tool belt <laughs> in my top of my toolbox. Uh, pretty soon, <laughs> hey, 10 years from now, it's going to be Brian Lunas was beating up little kids. That's what it's yeah, going to be yeah, in 10 course, years. You right. know, things like that. Um, no, I, 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 luckily in my whole career, um, I was lucky to not have any regrets. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I did, um, uh, you know, everything I worked at and did, I was really lucky, and I have no regrets. I mean, I really, like I said, I was yeah. so lucky to have, you know, a great career in in motorcycle racing, and then go on to have a great career in car racing. Right. You know, right. and uh, you know, uh, and you got some Oakley shares along the way. That's pretty good too. Yeah, right? Oakley shares, and <laughs> and you know, the whole club thing is, you know, luckily it was, you know, my kind of, yeah concept and i'm still here working with it but that was kind of jim and my kind of discussion we had i go you know i'm gonna when i quit working for race teams this is what i want to do yeah and you know and and that's why i'm here every day doing everything i you know involved in right right and uh so and you had a ferrari uh, jesus brian yeah i know so in reality i have no regrets Mm mm-hmm yeah, you know, sometimes when my daughter was growing up, um, she would give me a bad time about, you know, Dad, if you were around more when I was growing up. Yeah, yeah, right. And that one, you know, used to be like a stab in the heart. Yeah, that would hurt, right. Yeah, and I'd go, yeah, but you were a teenager and you wouldn't listen anyway. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. but yeah, that that's probably, from a personal side, that's probably the right one of the... Uh, yeah, you know, big regrets. Nowadays, the guys fly in and out. You know, they fly in Thursday. They're out Sunday. They're home Sunday, and uh, you know, spend a lot of time with their family, or, or more time with their families. You guys back then, man, that's that's on the road, and that's that's commitment for mechanics back then. I, I'll give you a little insight. On when I worked for Joe Gibbs mm-hmm. on Sundays, I used to get to fly back on the Joe's Learjet. Oh yeah, nice. And it was an eight seater, and you know, the two crew chiefs, Tony's crew chief. Uh, Bobby's crew chief, myself, the other, uh, the other guy that worked in, ran the suspension department with me, and um, I'd be looking out the window. You know, it'd be still daylight or whatever, and I'd be looking at the roads down there. You could see him through the window, and Joe would lean over and go, "Wish you were driving your box van." I go, "Uh, uh, uh, I'm happy right here in this." <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get to go on the jet, right? Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, no, it, it's it's. We always uh, we like to bug Coy about not having access to the jet, and JD does, and, and Coy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Coy. yeah. And we like, hey Coy, uh, you know if if Joe really loved you, he'd get you a jet like JD. <laughs> oh yeah, he usually yeah, just, I know Coy real well. <laughs> he usually just mumbles and tries and throws a swing at me at that point. Yeah. Tries, tries to punch yeah. me. But um, Brian Lunas, thank you for doing this. Uh, the BTO Sports dot com Racer X podcast presented by Thor MX. Uh, I. I'm a couple hours of awesome stories and, and real good memories. I'm glad you took the time to do this, and, and I'm glad I, I'm glad you did it because uh, this is really cool for me to do uh, personally. And uh, thank you, man. I appreciate it. Oh, no, thank you for oh, everything. Yeah, yeah, incredible career and still going strong at Mechanics Wear. And I uh, can't wait to see what you guys come up with next. So thanks again. Thank you. All right, bye.
This has been the BTOsports.com podcast show brought to you by RacerX. Don't forget to check out some of our past shows, including motocross legends such as The Beast from the East, Damon Bradshaw. It got to the point to where I didn't want to leave home, and once I got to the race, I wasn't into it. If I wasn't going to give 100%, I'm not going to take their money. The working class hero, Doug Henry. It was definitely an emotional moment for me, just thinking to myself, that's it, you know, and it's, it's amazing the stuff that goes through your head in a short amount of time of the things that, you know, that I was going to miss. The daughter, Ron Machine. Until you really open your ears and you want to listen to what they're saying, it's like being a dead horse. I mean, you know, and I know from personal experience, did anybody ever sit me down? Of course they did. Everybody did. Pro Circuits, Mitch Payton. There's two ways to make the money. One is you can sign for money, or two, you can earn the money. I'm a high believer in earning the money. I think they ride better when they earn the money. Seven-time Jeremy McGrath. I was so mad, like so disappointed and so frustrated that I pulled pitch and I left. Every point counts. I could kick myself to this day for not just riding around in tents. It's been no problem. My, my ego got in the way, you know? The O Show, Johnny O'Mara. Stuff that you could, you'd sit there if you didn't even want to ride it. You just wanted to just look at it all day. I mean, I got a chance to test all that. I like that era I was in. I really do. Search Pulp MX on the iTunes Store to enjoy these and many more great podcasts. You know I'm about to run. I won't let this die. You know I've got this bad.